Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to Modern Day Debates. My name is Carissa and I'm going to be your host for tonight. Um, Today we are going to be talking about right versus left libertarianism. Um, I'm really excited. We have a really awesome lineup tonight. Um, So the purpose of Modern Day Debate is to give everyone a fair and equal chance to be able to give their perspectives on things and to be able to um, have that perspective also attacked um, in a respectful manner. Um, So if you actually, if you really like debates, we are a um, debating channel that um, covers politics and religion um, and science. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Um, there's going to be a lot of debates coming up. Um, so the format of today's debate is going to be a little different than normal. Unfortunately, our one debater, Ms. Um, Dr. Humor, was not able to make it tonight. Um, so Dr. Friedman is going to have um, a 20-minute opening. Um, Brenton, Langle, and Non-Compete are both going to do 10-minute openings. We're going to start with Non-Compete. Um, so if um, so, then we're going to go into an hour of discussion, open discussion, followed up by 30 minutes of question and answer. So if you do have any questions, just fire it into the Super Chat, and uh, we will definitely get to those. Uh, make sure that you are attacking people's ideas, not the actual people themselves. That's a really important distinction. Um, so um, after uh, that, then um, you also can check out the, the links of the speakers in the description box below. Um, we have, again, some really amazing people, and they have even more content that you're able to check out. So definitely do that. Um, so if, if we can go ahead and get started in the introductions, um, Dr. Friedman, he is a professor of law, and he's an author, an economist. Um, Dr. Friedman, what would people expect to find at your link? What do people expect? To find uh, at your link in the description. I see. Well, I have a website. And the website has the full text of a fair number of my books. This is it, daviddfriedman.com. It also has a link to my blog, which has been running for about 15 years and so has quite a lot of comments on a wide variety of different things. Uh, I'm a retired law professor, an economist. Uh, I have never taken a course for credit in either of those two fields, although I've taught at quite a lot of schools at the undergraduate and graduate level. Uh, my doctorate's actually in physics, but I switched fields early on. Uh, I have a bunch of other interests. I, I write poetry. Uh, I and my wife and daughter research medieval cooking for the fun of it, uh, a variety of other things. And you can, if you go to my website, you can find, among other things, links to a few hundred medieval recipes, uh, to some of my poetry, 
and to lots and lots of my books, which include three novels and I don't know about six or seven nonfiction books having something to do with economics and, and, and law. Uh, the book that's most relevant to what we're discussing this time is my book, uh, The Machinery of Freedom, which was published almost 50 years ago, amazingly enough. The third edition came out a few years ago. And in that, I try to sketch out what a society without a government, but with private property and trade, what we sometimes call an anarcho-capitalist society might look like and why I think it would give a desirable uh, results. So I guess that's enough of an introduction. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, um, Brenton. You have been on this channel multiple times before. You're a comic writer, a playwright, and you also occupied Wall Street at one point. Um, yep, got thrown into a motorcycle by a cop. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> my goodness. Um, but what would um, the chat expect to find at your link if they click? Sure. I mean, if they click on my link, you're going to find my YouTube channel. Um, I just started it. And it's been growing very fast. We just uh, broke uh, a thousand subscribers. Um, the main thing that I'm famous for at this point is uh, my comic Snow White Zombie Apocalypse, which was just nominated for two Ringo Awards. Uh, and uh, the second issue is coming out. Uh, I just got the proofs back for uh, the uh, additional mini comic that's being published with it. And we're about to run a Kickstarter to fund the third, fourth and get the whole series out there. So it's it, that's really exciting. Uh, I've also collaborated with uh, the goth electro pop band, The Crew Shadows. We're working uh, on a novel together, uh, which is really exciting. It's a fantasy novel set in the afterlife. And I have had seven plays produced in New York City, ranging in topics from uh, the Appalachian Trail, which I hiked in its entirety, um, to um, the New York City open mic scene, uh, to, um, uh, you know, Vikings, <laughs> like Vikings in Iceland in the year 900. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that, that's what people will find. If you go to my channel, you're going to find me talking about politics, uh, philosophy, and Buddhism. Oh, wow. It's quite a, a wide variety of things. That's awesome. Um, all right, non-competes. You are a YouTuber, um, a pretty big channel. Uh, what would people expect to find at your link? Well, uh, first, I guess I want to say we all, all of us uh, so far are kind of in the same nerdy wheelhouse. I think I've, I used to do medieval reenactment when I was in high school. I, uh, I uh, would love to write a fantasy novel. I've been trying for like decades, but I've never actually finished one. Um, so I think we have a lot of the same uh, nerdy uh, uh, <laughs> hobbies uh, or whatever you want to call it. But um, no, as far as my channel and my link uh, are concerned, uh, Non-Compete is a channel that I do with my partner who, who's actually a Vietnamese uh, Marxist-Leninist, <laughs> although we actually have um, influenced each other a lot. She's, she, for instance, would, would agree with me that um, anarchism is the best uh, form and mode of revolution in the United States of America to get rid of um, capitalism uh, based on the material conditions of the USA. And, you know, I, I live here in Vietnam, so I actually see a lot of really uh, good aspects of this society, which believe it or not, I believe are, are fully compatible with anarchism and actually prove some of the points of anarchism, um, you know, like proof in the pudding kind of thing, because it, it, which we can probably get into that in debate. But anyway, my channel is focused on obviously uh, anarchist philosophy, politics. Um, we do live streams uh, and um, I, I have a, a series of anarcho communist uh, puppet shows. If you're into that, most people are not based on the <laughs> viewership, but <laughs> that's available. Um, like but yeah, that's, that's Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we try. I do have a video on Mr. Rogers, actually. 
Um, but yeah, that's that. I try to cover, you know, mostly I, I talk about the more serious stuff lately, but we do have fun and talk about pop culture and stuff. But, you know, it's it's been a bit tense and serious lately, so it's gotten a little bit more serious. But, you know, we still try to have some levity from time to time. All uh, right. While talking about this important stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Well, another thing that I, I do want to mention is that today is actually a charity stream. So all of the revenue from Super Chats are go all going to... Um, the charity Save the Children. Um, it has been checked out and just to make sure that uh, it is a transparent organization. Um, and if you would like a receipt of that, just um, email moderndaydebate at gmail.com and James would be happy to provide that to you. Um, so without further ado, we can get into the opening statements, non-compete. If you wanna go ahead and start with your 10, 10 minute opening, we can get rolling. Okay, um, so I guess the first thing I want to say, just very briefly, if you're not familiar with uh, anarcho-communism or anarchism, uh, the basic idea is that we are opposed to hierarchies uh, as a rule, certainly uh, what we call unjust hierarchies, and we believe that any hierarchy that would exist in society has to prove its own merit to the people who are participating in the hierarchy. Um, we are completely against coercion. Uh, we believe that consent is key. Uh, for you know, working for human beings to work with each other, and we believe that um, the governing principles of a functional society should be mutual aid, which means that you know we help each other without any expectation uh, of anything in return, um, and we believe that that will lead to the you know a productive and happy society with that would be free of those kinds of hierarchies and, and coercion. Uh, I believe that, um, you know, if, if you're more familiar with, as most Americans, I believe, probably are with the right anarcho-capitalist sort of version of libertarianism, um, you probably are familiar with the, uh, the disagreement that states uh, should exist, uh, which, which actually we, we agree with. Uh, that's something where we agree between the right and the left versions of uh, anarchism or the, or the capitalist and socialist versions of uh, libertarianism. We agree that the state is inherently... Uh, unjust. Um, we believe that the state should not exist. Uh, something that I like to say a lot early on in these discussions is that as an anarcho-communist, I don't believe in a state. And the way I define a state is a system of government that puts one class of people in a hierarchical position of authority above other classes of people. That's the that's to me the most important distinction between a state and any other form of uh, organization or government or call it what you will. So what I believe in is self government, which is to say, we as people can lead ourselves, we can do this through democratic means. But the design of the democratic system is very, very important. So obviously, you can design a system that has all of the uh, phenomena of a democracy and all of the appearance of a democracy, but it's not truly democratic. And I would believe I, I would say that the United States of America is a perfect example of that, since there are so many mechanisms that stand between the people and governance, whether you're talking about the electoral college, redlining, bureaucracy, all of these different um, uh, mechanisms. And, and of course, that's not even to mention the incredibly brutal, dominating, coercive force of the police, which is an institution that actually didn't form from the state initially. Initially, the police formed from slave owners, private individuals who hired slave patrols to go out and catch slaves. And um, not only that, but then there were the Indian patrols in the colonial era. Those were formed uh, you know, to basically subjugate Native Americans, indigenous people. And then the, uh, there were private police forces in the 19th and early 20th century, 
including the Pinkertons and many others that existed simply to subjugate workers who had unionized and collectivized and began to resist capitalism, the capitalists were able to institute private police forces that worked hand in glove with the state police force to suppress workers. So I guess what's very important for me to distinguish between the uh, socialist version of libertarianism and the right wing version of libertarianism is that we see any form of coercion or dominance or unjust hierarchy as, you know, uh, unacceptable. Uh, so we don't just, we're not only skeptical of the state. And I know that right-wing libertarians are also skeptical of corporations and they believe in, I, I hear, I talked to, I'm not going to assume what Dr. Friedman would say about this, but I know that I've talked to many of my right-wing libertarian, uh, I'm, a, I'm a former right-wing libertarian myself. I should have mentioned that I'm a former capitalist. I guess I'll, I'll get into that real quick. I ran um, several businesses. I've had dozens of employees and subcontractors and that sort of thing. Um, I know exactly how I exploited the workers that I had. I know exactly the mechanisms that I used to steal labor value from them, which I see as a coercive and deceptive uh, institution. I don't believe that it's possible for somebody to exist as a worker under capitalism in a truly uh, voluntary basis. I believe that there is a inherent coercion to it when you have a system where um, millions, and I see, we, we see it especially with COVID-19 recently, where uh, you have millions of people who don't want to work at Taco Bell and Hobby Lobby and Burger King or whatever because, with, without proper personal protective equipment, without proper uh, health care and assurances that they will be treated if they get COVID, without paid sick leave. They don't want to work. We've had well over 500 strikes since COVID-19 broke out uh, with these kinds of workers, um, and yet they're still out there working because, again, on the other hand, if they stop working, they are put into a situation where before the pandemic, one in seven people in the USA relied on food banks. Uh, more than 50% of people in some states and around 50% of people in most states are currently facing eviction. So if your choices are between work for Taco Bell without personal protective equipment and without proper health care and, and those kinds of guarantees or starve and become evicted during a pandemic, I just see that as inherently coercive. Now that brings me back to what I was gonna say about the whole, um, this libertarian notion of, oh, the problems aren't with capitalism, they're with corporatism. and I just want to go ahead and say, I cannot envision a system of capitalism existing where individual capitalists are allowed to own the means of production, the factories, the businesses, the, the, the heavy machinery and equipment, all the things that are needed. And nowadays, I guess you could also say things like servers, um, all the things that are necessary to build a functional business. Um, if, if one individual owns those means of production, uh, I don't know how you have that kind of system without corporatism eventually uh, are probably pretty quickly on um, stemming from that capitalistic uh, arrangement. Um, certainly in the 19th century, during the Gilded Age, when we had much less regulation, I mean, people, right-wing libertarians like to think of uh, the Victorian England as this golden era when there was like no regulation and people could just run their businesses they chose. That's when we saw, again, brutal, dominating, violent coercion of workers. That's why communism initially evolved was to, uh, to push back against that violent oppression. Uh, it wasn't really such a golden era for the workers. And certainly we saw that without the, without state intervention and with capitalist uh, domination, we had a, a very brutal, dominant, coercive system in place. And that still exists in many places, uh, you know, in South America and Asia today, where we have capitalist entities that have you know, overwhelming authority. It even exists here in Vietnam, which is um, obviously a very complicated country. There is capitalism here, uh, just as there is a powerful state here. 
Um, you know, so I see it. I see a lot of these problems firsthand in terms of um, you know the the strikes that occur in Vietnam, and there are uh, there's, there there have there were about 130 strikes in Vietnam last year, I believe, and most of those were against imperialist companies from Korea, Japan, Europe. Um, you know where where these companies are coming in, and they have massive amounts of power and, and wealth, and and of course they're they're using that to imperialistically dominate other countries. So then we have to think about the international coercion that's taking place. Um, so you know there are a lot of coercive forces beyond simply the state. And in my mind, the reason that I I, I went from being a right wing anarcho capitalist to being a left wing anarcho communist is because I realized um, that a corporation can have just as much if not more power and an individual billionaire can have just as much if not po more power than the state you know especially now in this era where we have private contractors with massive private armies which really just goes back to you know it to me echoes uh, the feudal era when we had individual lords who had their own little private armies and if there was conflict within society these armies would fight with each other so um i i basically am strictly opposed to any form of coercion I see the state as a coercive force, but I see that the state and capitalism as more really a, a, a dynamic system where they reinforce each other. The capitalists reinforce the state through things like lobbying, through things like uh, in, you know investing in uh, political candidates and then essentially owning them. Once a person gets elected, by the way, in the United States of America as a, as a politician, and I know this because I used to do marketing for uh, political candidates. I used to do political communications work. Um, they the, the first day they start raising funds for their next election campaign and that's their that's what they're kind of involved with primarily for the rest of their term in office uh and i you know so so capitalists reinforce the state and control the state in many ways and the state uh in exchange reinforces the capitalists and i just don't see any way of uh of undermining that as long as people individual private individuals are allowed to own the means of production i think that collectivism and democracy are the solutions to these coercive forces and uh, yeah, so I, I, that's basically, I think, in a nutshell, what I believe in and the way I distinguish myself from a, white, a right wing libertarian. Although we agree on a lot of things. I've seen uh, lectures that Dr. Friedman has put, has put on, um, you know, and, and I would say we agree with at least 50% of the things that, that um, we both believe are very important in terms of designing society. So I think you'll see a lot of overlap, but I did want to distinguish early on some of the differences that I have. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, all right, Brenton, if you want to go ahead and give your opening. Sure. Um, and before I begin, I just want to say um, I want to really applaud Dr. Friedman. I've been going over his lectures to prepare for this as well. Um, and I agree with a lot of what I hear. I think he's probably one of the smartest and most cogent voices coming from uh, right libertarianism. And anybody who knows me knows I've been arguing with these people since like 2014. So it, it is a privilege to speak with him here. And he's being a very good sport, especially not having a having the handicap of not having a, a uh, a partner at this point. So I just want to hats off to you, sir. Um, so we are he here tonight because of one of the most fundamental ideas and ideals in Western culture, freedom. Nearly everyone in the West, with the exception of a few fascists and unfortunately an increasing number of conservative politicians, agree that freedom and liberty are good things. And that right there is the common point of uh, agreement between myself, my partner, and our esteemed interlocutor. I think that it is fair to say that all of us agree that the goal of society should be to guarantee the greatest amount of liberty for the greatest number of people. But should 
is a dangerous word. And freedom itself is a slippery concept. It's all very easy to say the freedom to swing your fist ends at my nose. But in a world of exponentially increasing complexity where we are faced with a plethora of moral and eco economic dilemmas that human law and even normative human morality are simply not equipped to handle in their entirety. Uh, and that's when we constrain ourselves purely to the realm of the hypothetical. Once you work in problems of implementing freedom as policy and the, machine, uh, and the machinations of bad actors who seek not freedom but license to dominate and abuse, to gain at the expense of their fellow humans and the, and the planet as a whole, our relation to this seemingly simple ideal becomes all the more obscured and fraught. Enter political libertarianism, named as such by French anarcho-communist poet, philosopher, and writer Joseph de Jacques, who coined the term in 1857. The tree of libertarianism, in its proper historical context, grew out of the more radical currents of the French Revolution and built on the still unfulfilled promise of liberalism. Anarchism sought, and indeed still seeks, to guarantee liberty, equality, and fraternity for all of mankind. Uh, for as noted by left libertarian Mikhail Bakunin, uh, famously, liberty without socialism is privilege and injustice, and socialism without liberty is slavery and brutality. Now, Americans in particular may have a hard time understanding this because our current conception of socialism rests in the legacy of Cold War era propaganda put out by the US government. From the mouths of every mindless flag-waving politician, capitalism is based upon private property and individual enterprise, and socialism is based upon totalitarian government control and forced collective action. This simplistic lie was forced down my throat by parents, educators, government-approved textbooks, time and time again, just as the specter of the Soviet Union and Red China was trotted out over and over again to make sure that I, that we, continue to buy into America's most popular and widespread religion, that of capitalism, the free market, and the invisible hand. In short, as a red-blooded American male, I was raised to love capitalism, and I was taught from a very early age that capitalism was synonymous with freedom and socialism with a kind of Stalinistic slavery and enforced conformity. And so naturally, once I became disillusioned with the young Republican conservatism of my youth, largely over the GOP's overt homophobia and the disaster that was the global war on terror, I naturally gravitated towards the positions that Dr. Friedman currently espouses. I embraced right libertarianism, and this seemed logical and reasonable to me. That is, until I got out of college and actually got a job. One of the blind spots of popular American ideology as a country born of revolution that prides itself on entrepreneurship, individualism, and anti-authoritarianism um, is the fact that our actual liberty is not really under threat from our government. Unless, of course, we are part of a minority community, uh, the fact is, is that the greatest imposition on our freedom comes from our jobs. In short, we all need money to live. And if we do not obtain this money, we will very quickly find ourselves denied food, shelter, and crucial medical care, and we will be within the crosshairs of law enforcement. The only way to obtain this money is either to be born independently wealthy or to agree to sublimate our will and spend the majority of our infinitely valuable time on this planet between cradle and grave under the direction of an employer. Now, you might say you can work for yourself, and yes, some of us can, but not all of us, and not even the majority. A neo-Jeffersonian society dominated by independent contractors is economically unfeasible and impossible, and so this is not a solution. Similarly, similarly my interlocutor might say, you're free to get another job, one more to your liking. But he damn well knows that isn't really a solution either, because a statist could just as easily say, if you think taxation is theft, you're free to go somewhere else. Love it or leave it is not a solution. There is nowhere else to go. And that there is where we come back to the traditional libertarian philosophy, which is to say classical anarchism, the philosophy of Peter Kropotkin, Emma Golden, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, and Mikhail Bakunin. 
ultimately what left libertarian is libertarianism is is a critique of power and what is power it is the ability to increase or decrease a person's available options at your discretion left libertarians do not like power why because power by its very nature is coercive and let me say that again power by its very nature is coercive power and tyranny go hand in hand they are two sides of the same coin this is why we have the phrase power corrupts and i'm sure dr friedman would agree with me when we talk about political power but what he does not seem to realize or refuses to acknowledge is that wealth is also power or if he does uh, he'll claim that wealth is justified power why? Because the powerful person in question has proved their worth in the free market and is ultimately answerable to that same free market. Just as I'm sure many feudal lords claimed that the king had proved his worth via his bloodline and was ultimately answerable to the will of God. Because of course, as I have said, capitalism is the most popular religion in the Western world. So what's the alternative? How do we square this circle? How do we reconcile the fact that markets are inherently biased towards previous actors within those markets and that success tends to have a snowballing effect? How do we get around the fact that the psychology and skills associated with success within a marketplace are not necessarily correlated with the psychology and success that make a good leader and that the businessman rarely, if ever, knows how to create good, solid social policy? Well, luckily, we can look to history for our answer. The great suppressed history of the left libertarians, the philosophy that led to farmers and factory workers with homemade bombs and antique rifles decisively defeating a modern mechanized army for the first time in recorded history. We can look at the model that collectivized the entire Argonne Front and governed the entire city of Barcelona successfully for three years, leading to a massive production boom. Uh, a situation that world-renowned author and journalist George Orwell personally witnessed and described as, quote, something, uh, as, quote, something I recognized immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. We can look to the recovered factories movement in Argentina, where after a few years of hyper-capitalism that ravaged the country's hundreds of, of workers, seized their shuttered factories, which were currently being stripped for parts and sold off by their owners and ran them democratically with no bosses so that their friends, family, and loved ones uh, would have food in their bellies and a roof over their heads. We can look at the Zapatistas in Chaipas and to the PKK YPG in Rojava, who successfully defended their families from the threat of ISIS while carrying out a previously unthinkable progressive socialist revolution in the Middle East. What we can't do is look at anarcho-capitalist societies because these societies do not exist. And every attempt to create them has either imploded hilariously like the Republic of Minerva or been an outright scam to steal the money from well-meaning principled right libertarians like Galtz Gulch Chile. The times in history when private property and the free market were in total command of a society have been monstrous human rights failures. For instance, the Congo Free State, in which 20 million Congolese were murdered by Leopold II of Belgium, a crime rivaling the Holocaust and the worst Stalinist purges, and all of this was to gain a sum of rubber and minerals with no other guiding ideology but the law of profit and loss. Ultimately, the great fallacy of right libertarianism is that it does not address, critique, and check all forms of power. Rather, it forbids one form of power, that of the nation state, in, form of, uh, in favor of another form of power, that of the property owner. Right libertarians, as intelligent and well-meaning as they may be, are not solving this problem. They're just passing the buck. So how does left libertarianism solve this problem? Well, if we think about power as a vacuum that must be plugged, and I'm sure everyone who remembers the disaster that was Iraq post-invasion knows this is a very good way to think about power, we can see that humans have traditionally plugged this power vacuum with several large boulders, those of kings, presidents, and if Dr. Friedman has his way, CEOs and billionaires. 
the left libertarians instead propose that we grind those boulders to pebbles or sand and plug the vacuum that way. If we have a society in which everyone's positive and negative liberty is more or less equal, a society that prevents privileged bullies from rising up and dominating, we will check each other. We will in fact all become our brother's keeper and fulfill the long denied promise of liberalism, that of liberty, equality, and fraternity. And that is why I state unequivocally that the true path to liberty, equality, and fraternity, the true path to maximizing our positive and negative freedoms can be found within the classical anarchist left libertarian tradition. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenton. All right, Dr. Friedman, um, you have 20 minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to hear that American agrees with some of what I have written and said. If people agree with everything I said, who could I argue with? It would be a very boring <laughs> world. Uh, I don't think the terms right and left are really very useful. Uh, I think it a little odd to say that I'm so far right that I'm in favor of open borders and drug legalization. Uh, and I would like to describe the system I'm defending, which is, I think, the system that uh, the, my opponents are, are, are critiquing as propertarian anarchy. That is, as a system where you do not have a government and where individuals coordinate by voluntary interaction within institutions of private property and exchange. And that includes the possibility of large firms, small firms, of individual people who self-publish, a great number of different possible ways it can happen. The fundamental problem that all societies face is what economists call the coordination problem, that the world is full of people with different abilities and different objectives. And for anybody to achieve his objectives pretty nearly, he requires coordination with a very large number of other people, thousands, maybe millions. Uh, the sort of standard example that people like to give is making a pencil. If you think about it, making a pencil requires wood, requires chainsaws, requires steel, requires gasoline, requires copper, requires coal, requires iron ore. Once you think through all of the people who have contributed to making a pencil, you're probably talking of something over a million people. And the problem is, how do you coordinate those people? How do you arrange that if what I want to achieve requires five minutes of your time, you possibly being somebody on the other side of the world who I've never met, you have a, you both know that I value what you could do for me and you have a reason to do it. That's, that's the problem. I usually say that there are two solutions to this problem and the obvious one doesn't work. The obvious solution is top-down control. You have somebody who figures out what everybody should do, tells them to do it. That's a workable solution for very small groups. If you're thinking about a firm, run, a small firm run by its owner, or a football team, or a group of people who are campaigning for a political candidate who they all favor, it's, that kind of system works, uh, works there, but it doesn't scale. The system that scales is decentralized coordination using institutions of property and exchange that I get you to contribute to my objectives by contributing to yours. If there were only three of us, I could just do it by saying, look, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. But when there are 10 million of us, that really doesn't work because I want a tiny, tiny bit of what you're doing. Uh, and the way we solve that problem is to have transactions on an anonymous market. We have private property and some form of money and trade 
Uh, the fact that I need something means I go out on the market and try to buy it. My trying to buy it means other people have an incentive to produce it. Uh, and that's a system we observe working around us every day, that if you think about the world you're living in, for a couple of minutes, you should conclude we're all dead. Because after all, in order for us to live, in order for us to get the food we routinely eat, people 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 miles from us have to be producing food and fertilizer and tractors and a bunch of other things. And there's nobody in charge. Uh, and it nonetheless works through the, through the market system. And a full explanation of how that works and why it comes close to giving us the right answer, though not a perfectly right answer, takes a semester or two of price theory. If you want to teach yourself, I've got a book called Hidden Order, which is an attempt to do that in a book you read for the fun of it rather than because it's assigned, because I think that's a better way of learning things. Since the people I'm arguing with are left anarchists, I really ought to mention a third way of coordination. And that's the kind of voluntary cooperation that you get in a well-functioning family, that you get uh, in a team of volunteers for some project they're all in favor of. That happens routinely within a capitalist system. There's nothing in capitalism that prevents that. Uh, but it has the same problem as top-down coordination that it doesn't scale, that there may well be a dozen people who share my objective. There are not 10, 10 million people who share my objectives. There might be a dozen people who love me and therefore are willing to do things just because they want me to be well off. There are not 10 million. Uh, I like to say that there are really three ways in which people can, in which one person can get somebody else to do the things he wants, he wants done. And those three ways are love, trade, and force. Love works on a very small scale. And I really should include along with love having common objectives. You occasionally get that working on a scale of hundreds of people. If you think of something like the Oneida Commune in the 19th century, where the people are essentially sharing a common religion ideology, but it's very hard to scale it, scale it uh, beyond that. Uh, so if you don't allow for trade and trade requires property, I've got to own something to be able to sell it to you, uh, then the real alternative is force. And that's the one we generally get. So my challenge to the left anarchists is without property, how do you solve the coordination problem? Without a system where people produce things, own them, and can exchange them with other people, how do you arrange that the very large number of people who have to coordinate in order for anybody to achieve pretty nearly anything, with rare exceptions, uh, can, somehow, can somehow do it? Uh, and your requirement is both that all of those people know what you want, know what they have to do to make their tiny contribution to your projects, and they have an incentive to do it. Because of course, each person has his own objectives, very few of them share my particular objectives, so they have to have some other reason to do it, which of course, a price and the fact that they can get paid for it uh, gives them. All right, let me go on uh, to say a little bit more about this. Uh, markets and property, are already used to coordinate on a global scale. That most of the things, many of the things we consume uh, are made ultimately by people all over the world. Uh, they have been spectacularly successful. It's easy to complain about things that you have no standard of comparison if all you're saying is, well, look, I could imagine it being better. But we have some data. Uh, the developed countries of the world at the moment 
the average real income is about 20 to 30 times what the global average was through most of history. We have a rather striking more recent case, and that's China. That China under Mao tried to coordinate without a private property and trade system. They lurched sort of between failed decentralization via communes and failed centralization. Uh, Mao died. The Chinese leadership, which consisted, as far as I can tell, of intelligent people who, in fact, wanted to do good, finally got the opportunity to go outside of China. And what did they discover? They discovered that their country, with what they believed was the world's best economic system, was one of the, was dirt poor, was one of the poorest countries in the world. A, uh, a top-level uh, Chinese bureaucrat went to England, and he reported back that a trash collector in London had a higher real, a substantially higher real income than he did, and that England would be the perfect communist society if only it had a communist party party running it. Uh, China abandoned that. China is not nearly as capitalist as I would like it to be at this point. It's got lots of things wrong with it, but compared to what it was before Mao died, it is a relatively capitalist system. From Mao's death to 2000 and to the year 2000, I don't have more recent data, the real per capita income of China went up about 20-fold. That's just an enormous increase in human welfare that came from a partial shift to a capitalist system. The problem which most people, I, I think saying that, uh, well, I shouldn't be responding to things you said, but I would say that, that most people in the US and the developed world have a very mixed view of capitalism, that they are not, most of them in favor of socialism, though some of them are, but they assume that there are important things that can't be done by capitalist institutions and therefore has to be done by the government. And I prefer to focus on the ones for which that argument seems strongest, the sort of core uh, activities uh, of government, which are basically uh, law and, and law enforcement. And the anarcho-capitalist solution to that problem is that you have private firms which sell their customers the service of in protecting their rights and settling their disputes. The problem that everybody comes up with when they hear that, I'm thinking especially of Ayn Rand, but it's true of lots of other people, is what happens when I think you've stolen my television set and you deny it, and we have different rights enforcement agencies. Don't they end up fighting each other? And the answer is that warfare is a very expensive procedure for settling disputes, expensive enough that it's almost only used by governments. Uh, that the sensible thing for those agencies to do, recognizing this problem is going to keep occurring, is to agree in advance on a private court, a private arbitration agency, and agree that when my client loses the case, my agency won't try to prevent him from being paying damages or whatever the verdict is, and similarly when your client loses the case. What enforces this? The obvious question is, since in my system there's no government to enforce contracts, and what enforces it is the discipline of constant dealings. The fact that these are repeat players, and each agency knows that if it reneges on the agreement today, tomorrow when the case goes the other way, the other one will renege on it, and then they will end up having to pay hazard pay to their employees because they're shooting at each other, and that means they're going to go out of business because they will be competing with other uh, rights enforcement agencies that behave in a more civilized uh, manner. Uh, so what, what creates the law? 
And in this, I should say, not all libertarian anarchists agree. I would say that my large, most important disagreement with Murray Rothbard, who's a prominent person who started being a libertarian anarchist even earlier than I did, is that he thinks that philosophers will solve the problem, that essentially everybody will agree on what is just. I don't think that's very likely to happen in the real world. Uh, but what will happen in my system is that the arbitration agencies, the private courts, want to produce legal rules and legal procedures that their customers, which are the rights enforcement agencies like, so they can sell their services to them. The rights enforcement agencies want to produce legal rules and uh, laws and law enforcement mechanisms that their customers want to be under so that the customers won't go off to another seller of the same service. So therefore, it's in the interest of the uh, arbitration agencies to, to try to craft legal rules that are the rules that are in the interest of the population that those services are, are, are being sold to. Uh, that's the basic argument. I go through it in much more detail in Machinery of Freedom. And since I'm an economist, I put it in terms of economic efficiency. Uh, that does not prove it'll be libertarian. I can imagine circumstances, I've long said, where given the views that the customers have, some rules that I disapprove of might end up being enforced. Unfortunately, I don't know of any set of institutions that prevents that, since I can't control the people in a system once I imaginally set it up. But on the whole, liberty works. I think that's one of the things that libertarians uh, tend to agree on. And if on the whole liberty works, then legal rules that are the ones people want to live under will tend to be rules that uh, enhance liberty. That it is un un uncommon for it to be worth more to you to oppress me than it is to me not to be, not to be oppressed. Now, I should say, uh, there may be things that governments do better than the private market. Unlike a lot of libertarians, I don't claim that that's impossible. Uh, there are a set of economic problems that go under the label of market failure. However, if you think about where market failure comes from, it comes from situations where people are taking an action where either most of the cost or most of the benefit goes to someone else. That's possible in some circumstances in the market system, but it's unusual, it's an exception. That's the normal situation in a political system, that whether you're voting or passing laws or lobbying, almost all of the costs and benefits of your action goes to other people. So it is very often in the political interest of people to pass laws that in fact make the population worse off rather than better off. And the individual voters are not in a position to compare the alternatives because they only get to see one of them at a time. Whereas in my system, you get at least some comparative information on how good a job one rights enforcement agency or another is doing. It's still not perfect. Furthermore, the individual voter has no incentive to be well-informed because he knows that the chance of his vote changing the outcome of an election in a society of many millions of people is very close to zero. Whereas in a market situation, whether, ordinary, whether you're buying cars or, or buying uh, law, you know that your choice to some significant degree determines what happens to you, and therefore you have an incentive to try to do a rational job of being, being, being informed. Uh, now, there are uh, problems with this system, and since I've got more time than I originally expected to, I should say uh, there are a set of potential problems. Uh, one of them is national defense, and it's not clear how under either my system or your system, 
we defend against foreign countries that might want to conquer us. Uh, <clears throat> there are circumstances in which we might be able to, uh, but that's going to depend a whole lot on the culture of the society, how powerful and aggressive our neighbors are, and things of that sort. Uh, a further problem is that if you end up with only a small number of rights enforcement agencies, they might decide that robbery is more profitable than business. They might, in effect, cartelize and reinvent government. So therefore, the system is likely to be stable if in equilibrium the rights enforcement agencies are small enough so there are quite a lot of them, unstable if they're large enough so there are only two or three or four. Uh, that uh, there are a variety of other things which I think of as market failure on the market for law, which explain why under some circumstances my argument won't hold, and I discuss this in some detail in the third edition of Machinery of Freedom. I should say the second edition you can read for free, it's a PDF on my webpage. Uh, the third edition is I think either three or five dollars as a Kindle from from Amazon if, if people want it. Uh, let me say a little bit at the end on the possibility of anarcho-capitalism in cyberspace. I don't think it's likely that what I'm describing is going to happen within my lifetime, unless they solve the aging problem, which I hope they will, uh, in real space. On the other hand, if you think of interactions in cyberspace, especially if you're familiar with how public key encryption works, there is the possibility for a world with a very high level of privacy, uh, a world which has more privacy than humans have ever known. Uh, you can use digital cash for making payments. You can use digital signatures to prove that you're the same person that I did business with yesterday, and therefore I know whether to trust you from past behavior. Uh, and you can find a fairly detailed discussion of this either in my book, Future Imperfect, which deals with a whole bunch of future technological changes that might happen, might revolutionize the world, or in an article on my webpage called, I think, A World of, of Strong Privacy. Uh, and there are going to be good and bad things about that. One interesting possibility is that if we end up with a world where most of what people do is in cyberspace, which I think is at least possible via virtual reality and such, we then also have a world where individuals are very mobile. And the more mobile individuals are, the less power states have. Because a state, uh, if, if, it's, if the cost to me of moving from one country to another is low, then the government becomes something more like a landlord than a, than a government and is competing with all the other landlords uh, out there. Uh, let me see, what else do I want to say? I've already put up where my web page is. I think I've got about two minutes from what I've uh, seen before, and I don't want to start responding to things that you have said. But the basic argument I'm making is that a system of private property and trade makes possible decentralized coordination. It makes it possible what I think of as a desirable way. Go back to the question of what liberty means. Everybody likes the idea of each person controlling his own life. And the problem is, how is that possible in an interdependent society? All right, if you imagine each person is out in the woods homesteading all by himself, he could make all the decisions for himself. But given that my food has to be produced by somebody else, uh, given a whole bunch of things of that sort, how can I still be free? And I think the answer is that private property is what I think of as the machinery of freedom. That is the mechanism such that I get your cooperation 
by offering you uh, benefits that are large enough so that you would rather sell to me than to somebody else. Uh, I observe the costs of my action and what I have to pay people to do what I want, to get what I want. Uh, thus, you end up with, I think, the possibility in a private property society of a world where each person controls his own action. Now, there are always limits to that. I don't get to control my own action to the extent of having the woman I want to marry marry me. She gets to decide too. I don't get to have uh, other people provide me food without my doing anything for them. Uh, but I do get to have other people provide me food if I'm willing to give them in exchange something that they value. Uh, and the market gives a very, very sophisticated way of doing that on a very small, dispersed, decentralized scale. I think that's what I have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman. Um, so now we'll go into our hour segment of open discussion. Right. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for that. Um, it, it was a lot of what you said was really, really compelling. Um, I have a couple of, of quick answers. And the one that I want to go into first um, is uh, actually policing and, and private police. Because the thing is, is that this system that you are proposing has actually already happened in American history. Um, now, um, American Johnson was correct in that the first slave, uh, the first police uh, departments in the South grew out of uh, slave catching organizations. But in the North, the first police uh, departments uh, started out as private contractors. Um, and this was a incredibly corrupt and incredibly, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it was an incredibly corrupt system and it was also like an incredibly uh, expensive system. So expensive that the businessmen all got together and said, we're paying too much for protection to these private contractors. And these guys are, are going out and what they're doing is they're making deals with thieves and the thief will steal the property, the uh, uh, immediately will be recovered by the officer and the officer will return it for a reward. Um, so what they said to themselves was, okay, so this uh, police system is not working. We're paying too much money and these people are corrupt. What we need to do is we need to make it cheaper for ourselves. Let's make it into a public utility. And all of the business owners uh, or the vast majority of them uh, got behind this. And you had the, the very first police department in American history, uh, which was the Boston police. That is how they were founded with a push from the very people uh, who are calling for anarcho-capitalism and libertarianism today, which is essentially the petite bourgeoisie uh, business owners. So I I'm wondering how you will manage to get around that problem. And then there's a couple of other problems that I see, but I, I don't want to throw too much at you. I'm wondering what's the solution to that? begin with, I have no idea whether your historical account is true or not. It's not a period I've studied. I know a good deal about 18th and 19th century law enforcement in England because I've actually written on that subject. And that starts out with a system where criminal enforcement was private. That is to say, there, was, there were government courts and it was the government that hanged somebody when he was convicted, but there were nothing, was nothing equivalent to our police system. And the police there come in in about 1830 uh, in England, uh, the peelers, as they were as they were called, but I would have to know what the rules and institutions were that your people were operating under, because uh, were they, for example, themselves liable if somebody sued them for doing something wrong? I should say the business about uh, stealing and then saying it, selling it back. I don't know if you're if you've ever seen the um, Dry Grocery Opera, the Three Penny Opera, but. Mm -hmm. 
the central I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. All right. The central figure of that is based on a historical figure who combined the professions of thief taker, recoverer of stolen property, and large scale employer of thieves. <laughs> and he did that for about 10 years and they finally caught him and hanged him. Uh, but then pe various people wrote books about it because he was an interesting and colorful character. So that's clearly a problem. But in the system that I'm describing, uh, the police who are dealing with me are the ones of the firm that I've agreed to, that I've hired. I could hire a different firm. If the police who are working for me uh, behave in that way, I will find somebody else to do it. I, I think, by the way, the idea that the petty bourgeoisie are the supporters of anarcho-capitalism is a little bit uh, optimistic. I'd be delighted <laughs> to have more supporters of anarcho-capitalism. Uh, I think there are probably two billionaires I know of who are somewhat sympathetic to those views. Uh, but as far as I can tell, most of the anarcho-capitalists are academics, uh, you know, students, people of that sort. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and I don't think that the business people you're describing, at least in the 19th century, as far as I can tell, as later, businesses naturally enough, given that there was a government, tried to get the government to do things that would benefit them. Uh, standard example is tariffs that uh, the relevant economics were worked out by David Ricardo a little over 200 years ago. And I think most economists since have agreed that with certain exceptions as a general rule, a tariff hurts the country that imposes it. Uh, nonetheless, with the two notable exceptions of 19th century England and 20th century Hong Kong, pretty nearly every polity had tariffs. And the reason for that, I think, is that the beneficiaries of the tariff are a concentrated and well-organized interest group, a particular industry, eight firms or something. They can cooperate pretty well to raise money to bribe politicians to pass the tariff. Right. The losers the are most of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, uh, like Chomsky talking about uh, in a developed society, um, the, the certain cartels essentially will seize uh, the levers of power and make sure that the government subsidizes but, them. That's essentially but, but part, of, part of what's odd about it is realizing it's not a matter of certain people get benefited. You can easily enough have a case where the same person is getting $10 at a cost to other people of $20 because he's uh, owned stock in a steel company mm -hmm. and is paying $20 for something that ought to cost ten dollars, because he's flying on an airline, and before deregulation, the government had cartelized the airlines and was pushing the, the prices up. So it's 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 tempting to think, and many libertarians on my side do, of sort of a ruling class who are getting the benefits. But it's worse than that. It's a system where, in one role, I get a benefit that costs you more than I get. In another role, you get a benefit that costs uh, me more than more than you get. It's, it's sort <laughs> that, of that's a very good point. Um, uh, EJ, do you want to? I have more questions on law enforcement, but do do you want to take this? Well, I just wanted to. I guess I would jump in real quick and uh, first of all, just say um, there are multiple multiple accounts throughout history. You know, like the the Homestead Strike is probably one of the more well-known examples where the Pinker like three hundred Pinkertons were hired and given Winchester rifles by the Homestead uh, by by uh, Henry Clay Frick, who, um, you know, basically hired these mercenaries, this private police force to go and uh, brutally suppress workers. And I guess that would be one question is like, how do you stop a capitalist who has accumulated enough wealth to where they can hire a pretty large private army like that to stop workers from collectivizing or from doing anything that they don't want the workers to do? 
Um, there are plenty of other examples, like the way that Coca-Cola and Ford treated workers uh, in South America, where they would just literally assassinate uh, stri strike leaders and unionists and that sort of thing. I also wanted to quickly respond and, and, and see what you have to say about, you said um, that warfare is too expensive for most business people to want to reach for um, in most situations. But I would say if you have an overwhelming uh, force de majeure over you know, another party, warfare quickly becomes one of the cheaper ways of solving uh, any kind of a, a dispute. You know, if you know for a fact that you have a much larger uh, power uh, base than whoever you're trying to, you know, having a dis disagreement with, then that, that's basically how mafias get started. That's how organized crime gets started. And I would see the state as just a large overblown form of organized crime. So, um, and then, you know, the other, the, the last thing I'll say about that is most wars throughout history have been to profit somebody to, you know, they, they've they've occurred because it was a, a, the most expedient way to get a better deal, essentially. Um, so I guess I would I, I just wanted to push back a little bit against that idea that warfare is too expensive for these large, powerful capitalists to do uh, to 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 enact. If, um, if you have a society with enough inequality, you are going to have a hard time getting attractive results with any of the systems you're considering. Uh, you so far. Neither of you has really answered my initial challenge. Or how do you solve the coordination problem? Uh, Ooh, I, I can answer that, but I'll just wait. Just a minute. You, you will. Yes. Uh, but uh, if you think about sort of the world we live in, it is true a billionaire has a lot of money, but there are a very small number of billionaires and a very large number of people who aren't. So if you're imagining a system where the rights enforcement agency has a million customers and their income is only $50,000 a year, say, that still is $50 billion uh, worth of money of income, some of which can be spent on getting their rights protected. And you aren't going to find, uh, you're very unlikely to find a oppressive, uh, ultra wealthy person who is willing to spend that kind of sum in order to oppress. Because as a general rule, the profit from violating people's rights is lower than the cost to them and they're therefore willing to spend more. Now it's true that the richer you are, the more money you're willing to spend for any particular objective. But I think people vastly overestimate how unequal a really modern developed society is. That if you, if you look at, for example, people like to talk about wealth inequality. But if you think about it, if I have a billion dollars worth of stock, I'm not really controlling a billion dollars worth of resources unless I'm willing to sell it because that stock is companies. Those companies have to produce what customers want to uh, buy. They have to hire people who are willing to be hired by them uh, in order to stay in business. And if instead I say, well, I own that stock, so the company will produce what I approve of instead, pretty soon I won't have a billion dollars worth of stock anymore because the company will go broke. So the right measure of the inequality, I think, the relevant kind of inequality is income. And if you look at that, I believe it turns out that most of the inequality in the US system is not billionaires, that they, are, they have very high income, but they're a very small group. It's the lawyers and doctors and computer programmers. It's the people who have an income of sort of between 100,000 and $400,000 a year, which is a lot substantially more. I guess the, the median, I suppose, is somewhere around 50 or 50,000. I don't know exactly what it is, but something on that order. So it's substantially more, but it's not overwhelmingly more. Uh, but I guess my real argument is that I don't see a better alternative. I don't see a mechanism 
you know, one of the mistakes that people make in, across the political spectrum, I think, is to define what they want in terms of outcome instead of institutions. So for example, lots of people would say, we want a society that helps the poor and, and, and at the cost of the rich. But you say, well, all right. So you set up a society in which the government has got the power to tax people and to spend money. And you find out that some of what it's doing is to help poor people to get their votes. And some of what it's doing is to help rich people to get their votes. That it's pretty common, for example, for governments, local governments to subsidize the opera. The opera is not mostly consumed by poor people. Uh, the US heavily subsidizes schooling, as in particular college schooling. What does that mean? It means that the roughly, what, top 40% or so of the population in terms of some mix of family background, intelligence, enterprise, et cetera, the people who are gonna end up as the, roughly speaking, the top 40% of the income distribution are having the cost of their training paid for by the general public. Uh, and that's not unusual. Now, of course, I'm not saying the government's never helped the poor. Of course, they sometimes do. Poor people have votes too. But you want to think in any of these systems, you want to ask not what outcome do I want my, you first ask what outcome do I want my system to produce? You then say, what outcome will the institutions I'm producing produce, I'm, I'm recommending? And I would have to have a clearer idea of the institutions you want. Because uh, there are lots, it's usually there are lots of sort of small scale things that fit what you want and that on the whole I approve of. Uh, you mentioned having been involved in historical recreation. Uh, if you look at what happens in the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is where I've done most of my historical recreation, there is a fairly lively gift economy. That is, there is a system where people do things, give them away, and there's some understanding that you get some credit from that and other people do things for you. Uh, the, as you may know, I think one or the other of you had written something on, on Saga Period Iceland, and there's a line in Havamal, uh, mm -hmm. no man is so wealthy that he objects to receiving a gift in exchange for his gift. Uh, and that's how a gift economy works. And it's a more informal than a, than a sort of property trade one. It is a workable mechanism, although it, I don't think it scales as well as, as, the, as the, the modern system. But within a relatively small group of people, it, it certainly does. One of my current projects, one of my hobbies is lapidary work, cutting, cutting gemstones. One of the things I want to encourage in the SCA is people making historical jewelry. It therefore bothers me that people in the SCA are frequently have glass jewels or have no idea whether the stones in the, in the coronets they're making are really ones used in the Middle Ages. So I put up a, sta a standing offer on Facebook that if somebody's actually making period jewelry based on real pieces, I will donate. I will cut and donate the cabochons for doing it. That's a gift economy. Uh, I get a certain amount of status out of it. I can achieve something I want to achieve in improving the SCA a little bit, but that's not the way I want to depend on, on on supporting myself. And I think that, you know, in most contexts is not a workable way of supporting yourself. And that most of what I do and most of what I depend on involves strangers far away who don't know enough about me to, to, to share to share my objectives. Uh, uh, really quickly, so anyway, by the way, um, yeah. what was your, a friend of mine wanted me to call you this, but I, I, I didn't want to mispronounce it. What's your SCA name, your Duke? Cariadoc is the way I pronounce it, Duke, but it's really supposed, Duke Cariadoc. <laughs> it's Thank supposed you. to be a uh, a European pronunciation of an Arabic name, and I don't speak Arabic. I could show you somewhere where somebody who did 
who did speak Arabic actually constructed a plausible basis for it. And my original basis for it was largely a misunderstanding of some historical sources. Uh, so I answer, I respond to any of about three different pronunciations of that name. I don't really <laughs> okay, good. Well, okay, Lord Karyadak and, and Robert, now you need to make a thousand uh, alts and like my YouTube channel a thousand times. <laughs> so um, I, I actually have an answer for um, what you were talking about. And I agree this is a big, big problem because money is essentially, it's not real. It's an intelligent system that we use uh, to expediate like human cooperation. And I agree that it works and it's worked, but it has a, a number of very large bugs. Uh, what I would actually recommend, and I'm not sure if the technology is quite there, um, is what's called swarm technology. Now, swarm technology has been around since the 1930s, but lately there's been some huge jumps in what it is capable of doing. Uh, most notably, a few years ago, uh, a swarm was able to outcompete, like, like, like outcompete both the experts, which we can consider that the economic planners, um, and also the markets, which is were the Vegas odds, to properly predict uh, the top three winners of the Kentucky Derby. Um, this particular means of technology, and this is outside of my field, like I don't study this, so you would need to get uh, people who really study this to go into it. But what it was able to do was to, was to tap into individual inputs of everyone and create a kind of intelligence that was smarter than the sum of its parts in much the same way that a bee, no individual bee can understand proper hive placement, but together they come together and create the hive. So I think this technology could be adapted to make the kinds of important economic decisions that we are currently doing via market mechanisms with less uh, of the problems of markets. Because again, the problem is markets are uh, biased towards previous actors within the market and tend to have a snowball effect. Um, so that's one issue. The second thing that I'll say, and I think EJ can kind of talk about this, is we have seen some very promising uh, early attempts at this kind of coordination in the anarcho-syndicalist movement, particularly uh, it, you can look to um, the anarcho-syndicalists in revolutionary Catalonia. I mean, again, not only were they successful militarily in the sense that they were able to get farmers and factory workers with antique rifles. They were ultimately unsuccessful militarily, right? The communists. Well, ultimately, they were successfully militarily. They defeated um, the Spanish military in the region, collectivized the city for three years. Um, Buena Ventura de Rudy raised an army of between six and 10,000 anarchists, marched on Barcelona, or I'm sorry, marched from Barcelona to Madrid and was unfortunately killed uh, either by a Bolshevik assassin, a misfiring gun, or a um, uh, or a fascist sniper, depending upon who you ask. Uh, but the point is, is that the anarchists were not defeated militarily; they were betrayed. And in the three years that they ran Barcelona, um, there, those were times of excessive plenty. There was a massive agricultural boom that led from overturning the previous Latifundian system and ir irrigating land that was previously unirrigated. Um, and you did not see stuff like the black market return until the Soviets forced property rights to return to the area. And you can look this up. It's it's covered in Adam Hochschild's uh, Spain in Our Hearts, which is a brilliant book from a liberal historian. Um, the, the, the fact is, is that the anarchists were not their, their rule did not collapse because people's basic needs were not met. Their rule did not collapse because they could not handle militarily. Their, their rule collapsed from one, 
having false friends, the, the, the Bolsheviks suppressed them, and two, being so isolated from the rest of the world that they were denied uh, the kinds of weapons that they needed to defeat um, Franco, who had the, the support of Texaco, who had um, the support of Hitler's Condor Legion, and had uh, legionnaires sent in from Mussolini, the, the uh, Western liberal powers did not back them. And we can see this story play out again in recent history with regard to the PKK YPG, where again, uh, with uh, Maury Bookchin's democratic confederalism, uh, this organization was one of the top fighters against ISIS and was, and unlike in Spain, they were equipped by the Americans and in fact are still around, um, but were yet again betrayed by false friends, this time by Trump, uh, allowing the Turks to attack them. But they maintained their idea, they, they maintained some of their territory and they signed a deal with Assad. I don't have high hopes for that because Assad is a monster. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that as we've seen these attempts uh, at building a better world within the shell of the old, they're very, very promising. And yes, we haven't gotten to a point where they've done anything beyond the regional level. I would like to see it on the national or international level. Uh, but, you know, there was also a time when people thought that, uh, you know, capitalism and democracy would never work and we'd never get out from under feudalism. So I think what we need to look at is while these are not proof positive that these systems can work, I think this is proof positive that we need to be looking closer into these systems uh, and so that we can take care of some of the bugs in the monetary system. First, a small historical point. Mm -hmm. What democracy replaced was not feudalism, it was absolute monarchy. Absolute right. monarchy is what replaced feudalism. Good point, uh, thank you. <laughs> and on the whole, I tend to think feudalism is probably better than absolute monarchy. I absolute agree. monarchy looks good because it concentrates lots of wealth in the capital and so it makes beautiful buildings for us to look at and such, but at some cost to the people who are paying that wealth. But I would agree with you that, entirely on that, um, particularly that I, less people my, are lost in My impression in is that, that different people have different accounts of the uh, Catalonian case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't really know enough to know whether your account is accurate or not. But I know that in my society, there are no legal restrictions that prevent a group of workers from setting up a workers' co-op. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some firms organized that way, but not very much, not very many, but there are some. Uh, now you can't get a capitalist to give you your capital assets. On the other hand, if you think about how rich modern societies are relative to real subsistence, if it really was important, you could save, you know, a, a third of your salary for five or 10 years. And that would probably, depending on the company, be enough to buy out all of its physical assets. Uh, and set it up doesn't seem to happen very much. And I conclude- I can, I, I'd like to talk on, on that, that for a moment because I, as a former capitalist, um, so the, the one of the main reasons, actually probably the most common reason that a business will fail is undercapitalization. So the most, uh, the average startup cost for a business, and I have links to resources for all, you know, to sources for all this stuff I can, I can post if necessary. But um, so the average startup for a small business that lasts more than two years is about $30,000. Um, the average worker in the United States of America makes about $30 in real income and makes has about a, less than $1,000, uh, around $30,000. I have a link to that if, if, if that's under dispute. But um, they have real income. I don't know what you mean. Well, $30,000 is what, if you, not per capita, so you're not taking like yes. billion. Take the median. Uh, and, I yeah, don't think um, the, median, the median salary of an employed worker is not anything as low as $30,000. I'm pretty sure you could show me your sources. Let me find my source here. It's, um, 
here we go. Real personal income in the USA. If it's you from need the... to screen share, I can. You can go ahead and do that too. Yeah. Well, it's from the uh, uh, Fred Economic Data Economic Research Real Median Personal Income in the United States of America. It's currently sitting at about thirty-three thousand seven hundred and six dollars as of two thousand eighteen. When you say real, from the U.S. Census Bureau. No, but real income normally means income adjusted for inflation. That's the usual it's, meaning of the term real income. And yeah, it, so so you'd have to know in is those are those in current dollars or are those in? This is as of two thousand eighteen according to the U.S. Census. So I was no, no, but, but what are the dollars that's being measured in? You're saying that it's real income, not income. Nominal income would be the income that the number of dollars people get. Real income would be the number of dollars divided by the amount of inflation since whatever date they're defining it in terms of. So you'd have to know whether that what that was. You see the well, problem. That's, that's I, I mean, I, real income is 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 a tech. Perhaps if I send you the link, you can uh, yeah, you can tell me. But from that's what a, I understand, it's the it's the actual income that an average worker makes. It's a median the median income. Sorry, not not average, but median. Um, let me see if I so can. If I just the look point up, of the matter is, US, what would you say? That, okay, so what would you think that the uh, average worker, a, a typical worker that in the United States, what 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 figure would you like to throw out there? Because it doesn't really. Yes. What I'm saying doesn't hinge so much on on these this one fine detail. So uh, you can give me a figure. The figure I'm just looking up up a figure, and it says that the median personal income. Uh, for all full-time workers in 2017 was $865 a week. So if you multiply that by 50, it ends up as 40 some thousand. Uh, okay, so it doesn't really make much of a difference. But in any case, tax, so, so suppose, you're, suppose you're, making, you're making 40,000 a, uh, a year. You, you have $1,000 in savings or less, which is also 69%. That's your choice. If, look, if you're talking about a, about a system so much better that people should be willing to have a revolution for it, a revolution is a whole lot more expensive than living like a hippie for five years. I don't think that it's a choice because when I was a capitalist and I had workers that were working with me closely in my office and I and during the financial meltdown of 2007, 2008, 2009, and I was getting a stack of 20 or 30 uh, resumes coming in per week because there was so much uh, need for jobs, um, my employees definitely didn't want to work for me. I had, I had a few employees who wanted to move to New York, who wanted to get other jobs, who wanted to do other things, but they were tied down to my company and and basically couldn't quit. They had they were they were essentially coerced by the market and by my position of authority over them into doing whatever I told them to do for that period of time. So it wasn't really there were there, there see there are other power dynamics. I wanted to mention this. There are other power dynamics beyond simply the the dynamic of um, you know I have fifty thousand dollars. We can all collectively. So if 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 I'm your employer and you wanted to have a dispute with me with your personal police department or conflict resolution department or whatever and I'm your employer I have other options I could fire you you know there are there are other power dynamics and you can fire him you can quit right it's yes but like look at the COVID-19 context right now you, if somebody you, wants to quit talk, working at Taco Bell so the fact that you're constrained not to always do what you want is somehow something imposed on you in order for you somebody's got to produce that food Whatever Why can't they collectively own the means of production is the big question. But in that case, but, but, but so they collectively own the means of production and that means that somebody's got to compel the farmer to work. That's right? not how it's worked for thousands of years in, in agricultural societies. I mean, people, if you look at the work of Yokai Bankler who talks about uh, crowdsourcing and collectivization, 
uh, and does comparative studies of all the fields of science right now, they're all moving towards a more mutual aid, crowdsourced, collectivist form, including businesses, because it's fine. What 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 Bankler is finding is that all these fields of study are starting to move away from that. Everybody is is co is uh, competing with each other, and everybody is pitted against each other to this more mutual aid aligned principle. Now, what Bankler found is that some uh, in some instances people are cooperative, in some instances they are competitive. It has a lot to do with the system design. So in, in systems that are designed more for cooperation, people tend to be more cooperative. I think that kind of makes sense. But but you know, in large scale, uh, collectivization and crowdsourcing and and working together is becoming more the norm in all these fields of study. And if you look, for instance, at uh, something that I've worked in, which is marketing and media production, that sort of thing, and and uh, web development, that sort of thing. Um, 20 years ago, nobody would have ever thought, they would have thought it was is ridiculous to say, oh, why don't we put something out there and we can just let people voluntarily come up and crowdsource information for us to use for a model for this project. 20 years ago, you would have been laughed out of the room. Now it's the norm. Now it's, it's very much- That uh, sounds to uh, me like the way in which the academic world has been running for something well over a century, right? I mean, the open source approach to software is really an application to the producing of software of what's really been the academic model for a very long time. And that is that people write articles mainly in order to improve their reputation, in order that they can get jobs at universities or other places, just as people write open source software in order to improve their reputation so that employers will, will hire them. That Correct. the source has to be public. If you write an article and you say, here's my conclusion, but I won't tell you the evidence, nobody's gonna listen to it. So that's, that, that's not something new, but the question is, in the society as it now exists, there are no laws preventing people from interacting in this way. Some people, some of the time do, and yet you there do are not circumstances. Fact, there are very Even if they're not laws, there are other forms of, of coercion. So there are circumstances that can coerce somebody. Do, do you agree with that? There are other forms of coercion, coercing people. So for instance, if we were on a, a I, I hate to can, can I jump in real quick? Because yeah, I have it, kind of a personal thing here um, that I think might yeah. be able to illustrate this. So um, one of the reasons I first went to Occupy Wall Street uh, was my wife. Uh, my wife uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and needed about four surgeries. Now, um, and this is a lifelong illness. Uh, she actually, you know, even to this day, can, we cannot have her not have health insurance um, for even a week. Um, as a direct result of that, the types of careers that I can uh, pursue are limited. Um, and my choices are limited as to who I can actually take a job from and what I can do because ultimately uh, I'm dealing with um, a spouse uh, that if she doesn't get her, her medicine could die. And a lot of people are, are dealing with these similar problems. I even think, uh, and you don't hear a lot of politicians talk about this, but I even think that the push against universal healthcare is in a way a push uh, to help uh, either directly or either intentionally or unintentionally to help the larger corporations that are the only ones who can actually uh, provide healthcare compete against the smaller corporations and the smaller startups that can't afford these ridiculous insurance rates that we have in the United States. So right there, there's there's an example of a outside coercive force that uh, that puts a lot of pressure on my individual choices of what job I can take and when I can quit and when I can't. I have a problem with the way you're using the term coercion, because I think of coercion as something that people do to you. But in your sense, we are all coerced by reality, right? I am coerced in a very serious fashion, which you aren't yet, but you will be. 
And that is that given my present age, it is unlikely that I will be alive 30 years from now. You can call that coercion if you like, but I don't think it's useful to use the same term for that as the form of coercion that comes from somebody coming up to me, sticking a gun in my ribs and saying, do what I, what, what, what I tell you to, or, or I will shoot you. Those are different. What if I say, do what I tell you to do, any, and you will in start. Any set, in any set of institutions, whatever your institutions are, you are going to be constrained by reality that there are going to be things you want to do. Uh, if, if the woman I want to marry won't marry me, I am coerced. That is to say, I can't get something of enormous importance to me. Uh, so it, I don't think you can say the fact that in this society, people sometimes end up having no uh, no choices other than the ones they're making. Uh, it's not sometimes though, it's like, it's very, very common. I would say it's the norm for most people to have a very small set of choices where they're confined to work for a capitalist or starve have their and, and it's not it's not a situation where they're voluntarily going in and saying okay um you know i'll work for you and then you pay me and then it's a, it's like it's not this this voluntary but that is the fantasy. deal see no it, because it, if you don't work for what if somebody who is working for taco bell right now during a pandemic going to do if they don't want to work for that taco bell what, work, what are their options work realistically work work for another, another capitalist company. exactly if, if they're if they're not if they're not in if they're not in california they get to work for uber or lyft uh, Which they, is, and I've been an Uber driver, and I can tell you that's a very coercive relationship. And it's not just a coercive relationship between me and Uber; it's a coercive relationship between me and the passengers as well. Because if you get less than a four point five star rating, you lose your job. So basically, if somebody just says you didn't do a perfect job, then at least that was the way it was when I was driving. So I'm sitting here where I have this coercive relationship where I have p passengers in the back seat of my car who, in many cases, were saying things that, under normal circumstances, <laughs> I would have kicked them the hell out of my car, but I couldn't do that because my job was on the line. Now. The, the point I want to make really quickly, because I think this, you were talking about reality and that we're all subject to the to the material conditions of reality. I completely agree with that. I And I want to say, I want to quote you John Locke here. Coercion. Said, well, John, I, you are. well, John Locke, it can be coercion, but it can also be uh, a, a positive thing as well. Nature is nature. It is what it is. Reality is what it is. So it, it's just, this, this, it's the it's the rules we all have to play by. John Locke said, the earth is a gift from nature. And if you go back far enough, all wealth that has ever been accumulated, going back far enough, it was acquired by force because originally earth belonged to nobody, land belonged to nobody, the means of production belonged to nobody. And, and to say that is another way of saying it was all owned collectively by humanity. You know, And at some point somebody said, this is my land and if you wanna use it, you do what I tell you to, or I will violently you, you, you uh, are, force I think, you to do other. You are, I, I don't you, object. I think you are confusing two different form alternatives to private property. One of them is social ownership, the whole, and that requires some mechanism by which somebody decides who can use the land, right? If the land is owned by all of us, there is yeah. something, however it's organized, that says that once you've planted wheat on it, I do or don't get to plow it up for doing something else. The other is a commons, which is the situation when you have no property. A commons is the situation where anybody can use it so that the air is pretty much a commons in our society. Uh, Language, the ocean is largely language as a commons. That's right. Language it's not a, a commons in our society though, because a, a a corporation can pollute it, and I can't do anything to stop them. So you can't really say that I that have makes it a the commons. same level of ownership. That's as the a part of, one of the problems with a commons is that people can use it in ways that reduce its value to others. But right. you can't. They can't stop you from using it. They can't and the only way that I can think of to solve this problem of making decisions is through democracy, which democracy can be uh, designed well or it can be designed poorly. But how can you decide 
how much we pollute the air as an individual. That's not something that any individual should ever get to make that decision about because it affects every other human being on the planet. The, so how do you solve the problem? Yes, if you, if you look at the chapter on market failure in the market for law in third edition of machinery, one of the examples, I give a couple of examples, there are cases where there isn't a good market solution. And the question is, do you put up with a suboptimal situation, which is going to be more air pollution than will be desirable, given that the alternative is having a government with the power to do a great deal of damage, as, as governments in practice do. I'm not a utopian. I don't think you can get a system that, that does all good things. But sure. going back, and, and one of the, back, one the, of the basic principles, the commons, well, the commons on, is, American, if nobody properties, I'm listening, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm listening. If nobody propertizes the land, what you have is a commons. and the problem of morally justifying propertizing land is a hard problem. I have a make an attempt at it in the third edition of machinery, but it's not a very successful attempt. I don't know anybody else who's done a better one. But what I think is clear is that if you don't propertize land, people starve. Because if that would include your 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 social propertization as well. If nobody if everybody if anytime okay. I do anything with land, everybody else is free to walk over it, plow it up, uh, harvest the wheat I planted and so forth. Then you, then we starve to death. And it I mean, okay. what I would say is, and, and if you, and, and it seems to me that saying, ah, it belongs to all of us, that raises the same moral problem as saying it belongs to me because it belongs to all of us. Means that although the corporate body did not create the land any more than I created the land, the corporate body claims the right to keep me off of it because someone's got to decide. And I mean, I would sure. say, and this then, and the anarchists consider property rights via possession and use as opposed to by state deed. Um, but what, what I wanted to bring up really quickly here, um, because we are getting into the weeds and stuff, and there's a bunch of things I'd like to jump on, but sure. um, I, I wanna kind of go back to uh, police and, and, and defense. And this is my question. So we have, let's assume in your anarcho-capitalist world, we have private police, private courts, private mm -hmm. prisons, all operating for profit, correct? Correct. All right, what stops private police from voluntarily uh, combining with private prisons and a private legislature and the government. yeah and, and essentially creating a modern slaving state and, where they have the incentive to lock up as many people as possible put them to work in the private prisons um, and nobody can stop them that, here that probably isn't optimal from their standpoint probably if they can recreate a government they want to leave people moderately free because they'll be much more productive that way and then tax so them so ideology but they're doing they're doing it now no no it's I'm that, just saying that, that it's a practical now. matter I, I don't deny that what you're describing is a potential problem. I'm just saying you have the, the your your version of what the problem looks like. It seems to me is a good deal uglier than the likely one. If you think about actual uh, societies which are undemocratic, they generally are not uh, slave societies. However much our rhetoric may call it that, but the yeah. answer is that if you end up with only a very small number of private rights enforcement agencies, then there is a serious risk that will happen, which is a point I made in the third edition of machinery. Uh, on the other hand, if there's a fairly large number, we observe in ordinary markets that cartels sometimes happen if you have two or three firms, but you aren't going to see a cartel in an industry with 100 firms, because anytime a few firms get together and try to offer worse terms to people, it pays other firms to take their customers away. So you don't see a cartel of restaurants. You don't see a, the only cartel of barbers you get is the one that the government supports, namely barber licensing in many cities, which holds down the number of barbers, but you don't get it happening through, through the, the private market. Uh, so, so I think the, the answer is that if you if if, but of course the same the same issue arises in your system, given any system at all, 
You have some well, mechanism for preventing people from doing bad things. Sure, if but, that, but it's disincentivized. What in a in a libertarian in a left libertarian system that is disincentivized because you cannot become wealthy in a left libertarian system. What do you mean you can't? You mean the system says you can't? No, I mean you, you, literally you, you, like you can have you can have people who are working as slaves for you. You of course will use other language to describe what they're doing, but someone is controlling the food. Someone is controlling the land. Right. Some but it, it, for, for instance, let's that. say the the land is uh, controlled essentially by a non hierarchical militia, where everyone draws the be. same pay. How does the, how does the non hierarchical militia decide who gets to plant to plant wheat on this piece of I, land? Usually by direct okay, democracy. I, That's how anarchists have traditionally done it. That's what we just when, explain what you mean by direct democracy. Do you mean you you have a vote on on every every issue with not the on use every of a issue, large area of land issues, goes yeah. to what? Uh, not, not on every issue, but on important issues that affect all of us. Um, usually it's done through a general assembly. So we did this at Occupy Wall Street, for mm -hmm. instance. Certain things that were less important, people just went and did and handled on their own. Other times when there was a big decision to be made that affects the entire community, we would do use direct democracy and people would vote via consensus. And so, so what, we would either what happens in that consensus. system? What happens in that system if just the equivalent of what you were worrying about in my system. I mm -hmm. put together a coalition of 60% of the people mm -hmm. and we say, well, we can do whatever we want. We're going to get a majority of every vote. So well, we, we are going to allocate so all you, of you the land to us for us to control and the rest I can of you answer can this. Okay. So because this is this is essentially how a state forms is when you have a, a small a group of people, a, a minority of people in my opinion who who come together and they build an apparatus to coerce other people into doing what they say. So uh, the the solution to that is always insurrection, you know, and if you have a system where, and that's just being, you know, it doesn't have to be violent insurrection, but you know, if, if, if there is coercive force being applied to a group of people, it's incumbent upon them and they have the right to rise up and resist that coercive authority. Now under a anarcho-capitalist system, if they have a if, if the capitalist has all the wealth and can hire the more cops but and the capitalist they, doesn't have all the wealth. The capitalists, at least looking at the ones we have here, capitalists have of the total income much less than half of it. And that's what's buying things. What I might point out, by the way, is yep. we're assuming that all of these uh, states, like when you talk about it being two or, or uh, companies, are all operating on like a single currency. Whereas I think in reality, when we've seen this, they would be minting their own currency and passing it out to mm -hmm. like people like uh, in company towns. Um, company stores. Yeah, which was a huge problem and like caused stuff like the Battle of Blair Mountain, where the Pinkertons and like even like freaking uh, it, airplanes dropping incendiaries on on striking miners happened, you know, um, as a result of these companies. Like, uh, there's there have been a number of times when the only when there is no actual state apparatus and companies behave the way that they want to behave. A great example is the um, British East India Company, and I mean they starved ten percent of the Indian subcontinent to death within a single year. I mean they. they they cut a, a swath of destruction that we are still dealing with today, and it, it didn't stop until they broke on the on the rocks of Afghanistan, because Afghanistan is where empires go to die. So, like, um, I, I feel like what East we're seeing. India, wait a minute, the East India Company had lost its control over India quite a long time before the first Afghan War, if I'm not remembering my history correctly. I mean, it may have been. I may be simplifying the history there, but but the point is, is that the East India Company, outside to, of England's borders, if you're, behaved if you're going as. Going to base your argument on historical facts. You really have to pay attention to what they are. 
because it's well, too easy. History is this huge kaleidoscope of all sorts of different things. And you I, I mean, this is like, anything. I prefer to talk about things happening now anyway, because yeah. to be honest, the material conditions have changed so much. Like what we have today. So, so I, I, I want to go back to the reality thing again, because I think that is very important. And I'm, I'm glad you raised that point. Uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, one of the main reasons that we come together as a society and don't all just live as individuals is because we have material needs that we need to survive. We need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, we need all these things, right? Right. And it's been uh, it's been estimated in recent studies and in studies going all the way back to Benjamin Franklin that if every able person contributed to, uh, you know, meaningful work, not the kind of BS jobs that uh, that we have under capitalism, but if everyone contributed in a meaningful way to the production of what we need to meet our material conditions, then we would all only have to work. Uh, I mean, Benjamin Franklin said, I think 25, 20 to 25 hours per week, uh, but certainly we wouldn't have to work as much as workers are forced to work today under capitalism, often doing jobs that are not productive at if, all. If you would like to have the real wage that Benjamin Franklin's contemporaries had, you can do it quite easily for a good deal less than 24 hours a day. If you compare what hourly wages are now to what hourly wages are then, that you're making the mistake people often make of assuming that there is somehow a fixed standard of what it takes to you know live a decent life. And in fact, if you sure. look at yeah. it, you will no, find it's a, Benjamin it's a Franklin's time. Framework. One moment, just one second. I like to um, say that Dr. Humor has actually um, been able to make it. so. Uh, he's going to be entering into the discussion. I'm Very sorry, good. Dr. Humor. Um, we are are uh, kind of wrapping up the end of the discussion, but I'm glad you're able to make it. Great. <laughs> I, I will yeah. shut up then and let Michael uh, handle things. <laughs> uh, sorry, I was. I guess I was um, confused about when we were doing this, so I um, was not here at the appropriate time. Well, I'm glad you're here now. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Yep. But yeah, just um, feel free to jump into the discussion. Um, is it worth having Michael do his prepared talk? Or do we think that given that I already had the amount I had, it's not appropriate? I think since we're going to be wrapping it up here, we'll, we can just right. continue um, in our discussion. And then All right. we'll get to yeah, Maybe we can work, uh, work Dr. Humor into a, a future debate as well so we can get sure. his perspective out. Because um, I will say, you know, it's getting a little contentious here, but honestly, I'm really enjoying this discussion. Mm -hmm. It's very stimulating. Sure. And, uh, sure. you know, Dr. Friedman, it's, you, you have not disappointed. <laughs> I guess my, my, my complaint, in a sense, is that your answer to my how do you solve the coordination problem mm -hmm. all consists of historical assertions that I'm not in a good position to check whether they're correct or not. And the nice thing, I mean, it, it may sound odd, but the nice thing about theory over facts is a theory you can look at in your own head. Fact, well, I would recommend, yeah, so if, if you want to know about my uh, assertions, um, you can read uh, The East India Company and The Natural World. Um, that's where this history comes from. And it, it's pretty but, monstrous. But I, I've had lots of experience with reading different accounts of some historical sequence of events and finding that they are telling very, very different stories. So I'd rather argue if I can, by not having you tell me that you think this worked at some point in the past in some way, I want you I, either I, I, to okay, so can I just really why it I'll, can't I'll, work now or explain yeah. in theory how you coordinate things without a market and prices. Can I suggest, I'll let me uh, respond to that really quickly and then maybe Dr. Humor can um, yeah. respond, but maybe just to keep things moving. Um, so basically, the first thing I want to say is that anarchists are not, uh, you know, utopian ideal, anarcho-communists are not utopian idealists. One of the things that Rudolf Rocker, 
an early 20th century anarcho-communist said was that I'm not an anarchist because anarchism is the end goal, but because there is no end goal. And we realize that as we move to try to deconstruct unjust hierarchies and dismantle coercive forces in our society, it is a very long-term project and it will be going on for countless generations probably. You know, it's gonna take a long time to dismantle all of these hierarchies. But the point is to be inherently skeptical of hierarchies and of coercion and to dismantle them as we are able over time. Okay, so, and, and, and in doing so, I believe and this is something where my fellow ANCOMs sometimes disagree with me, but I believe that one of the most important practices we have to engage with as libertarians, as uh, anarchists, is the development and the design and the improvement of systems of democracy. Because when we are talking about the common wheel, when we are talking about things that have collective uh, impact on all of us, like the air, like food, food production, all of these things that we all need to survive and land that produces those things, democracy might not be perfect and the way we have democracies designed right now might not be perfect and there might be several flaws, but they can be improved. The errors can be found and dismantled. And if democracy fails, then it's incumbent on the oppressed people who do not have a voice in society to Di through direct action, and I think that I think that right wing libertarians also believe in direct action and 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 fighting for our own liberty. We well, unless they're rest... NAP people, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, and then to to that, I would just respond that property itself violates the NAP because again, going back far enough, at some point, somebody aggressed somebody to own that land because again, at the beginning of things, it was all owned by nobody, which means it was all owned by everybody. So I guess that's oh, kind of I, I don't know if that's enough not owned by everybody. There wasn't an everybody structure that could tell you, this is the person who gets in this don't. You shouldn't confuse a joint ownership with commons. What I might when point out with regard okay, to like the, the, the tragedy of the commons, because I think that's what you're, you're getting at. No, um, I'm just pointing out that a commons is a commons. Yeah. Well, commons can still be managed, though. Um, again, which is why anarchists have traditionally done property rights in terms of occupancy and use uh, in much the same way that the Native Americans or most Native American tribes, um, you know, uh, you, they used the territory when they were on it and when they abandoned it, other tribes could come in and use it. Um, now, uh, and this is kind of a natural way that humans organize themselves before the state and can come in and write, you know, uh, laws and enforce those laws with uh, hierarchical police forces. Now, I do have a question, though, about coercion. I want to get to the nature of coercion. And, and, and Dr. Friedman or Mike Humer, you guys can both answer this one. And imagine this, hypothetically. You are hanging off a cliff and you're holding onto a rope. And there is a man holding the other end of that rope. And he says to you, give me your watch or I drop my end. Has that man robbed you? Mike, do you want to take it? Uh, I don't know if that counts as robbery, um, but I don't know if that matters. So, you know, is he being an asshole? Yeah. So, yeah but, but, but is it coercive um, or is it a free choice to give him your watch? Um, hmm. How did you get into that situation? Well, hypothetically, it, it doesn't matter for the purpose of this, but uh, if we're talking about capitalism, essentially what I'm getting at is we were all, unless you were born oh. into the 1%, you were born on a cliff, like yeah, hanging so. from that rope. And you have, to, you, you have to serve a capitalist under the conditions that that capitalist has set. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think you have false factual assumptions, okay? But I mean, let me tell you a different hypothetical. 
mm -hmm. um, because this happens in, you know, this happens actually. So, um, you know, you're diagnosed with cancer and um, they tell you that you need surgery. And mm -hmm. if you don't get the surgery, you will die. And then they say, please sign this form, right? Where you agree to get the surgery. And of course, then, you know, you're gonna be charged a certain amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully you have insurance, otherwise you'll be cleaned out, okay? But you still, have, still probably have to pay something even if you have insurance. So is that a valid agreement? No. Um, I, would, I would consider it invalid because again, that is holding somebody's life over them to prompt some sort of behavior out of them. And I would consider so, that coercive. So I mean, that, if, the, if the doctor gave you the cancer, then I would agree that, that was coercive and wrong. But, and I think that it's very widely accepted. So he didn't give you the cancer. I think it's very widely accepted that that's a valid agreement. I mean, right? it's a valid agreement on its face, but if you look at it from a larger perspective, uh, another good example of this might be, uh, and this is a, a real life example. Um, I, I had a friend who um, had not he'd given up on ever being able to own a house. And then what happened was um, he, he moved home and the house that his grandfather had built with his bare hands um, he was invited to, to live in it and it was wanted to be gifted to him uh, by his grandmother. His grandfather had passed away quite some time ago. Uh, but then um, what wound up happening was, was that the grandmother took a fall and needed critical end of life care in a nursing home. Um, now, the thing was, was that they did not have the money to pay for this critical end of life care. The state would provide Medicaid, but only if the all assets were liquidated at fair market value. So my friend was forced to get a mortgage to buy his own house and pay a bank for 30 years um, just to get the critical end of life care that the elderly need. Now, this seems to me to be an incredibly abusive relationship where huge corporations benefit off of the things that cannot be avoided within human life. We cannot avoid, uh, we cannot avoid the, the, the pangs of hunger. We cannot avoid um, the sufferings of, of disease, old age, and death. And there are people growing rich off of this uh, and exerting their control oh. over our behavior and over our property by holding that over us. Now, I would consider that a coercive relationship. And I, 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 mean, I, would, I would describe it as people getting rich off of helping us with those problems, right? I mean, I mean helping, yes. There's a, but there's there's a, a big difference that, between if they're creating the problem and if they're well, addressing you could, the problem. Well, they're and taking advantage really of the problem, I didn't, I didn't mean to which you. is I why I did the hanging by a rope off the cliff. Because I, I want to see, like, the, the point of it is not that it's real. I, I just want to see, like, where you guys draw the line in terms of, uh, of coercion. Because oftentimes can I, I see... Can I make one point really quickly, which yeah, is sure. that um, this, this, kind of, uh, this kind of rhetoric is, I think, very dangerous because it can be used to excuse major instances of oppression. So, for instance, there, were, uh, there was the whole, like, happy slave myth during the Civil War or antebellum period in the South where I'm from, where you know people said, oh, we, we give them food, we give them clothing, we give them everything they need, they're very happy. This justifies the slavery because we're helping them. And Andrew Jackson uh, made many speeches and wrote many uh, essays about how sending the Native Americans west during displacement was actually doing them a big favor because, oh, we're, we're giving them all this land and we're, and we're uh, yeah, so preserve their culture. None, and we're none, of those, none of those were voluntary agreements. Those were all compelled agreements. And My that's what we're saying is both, that there's these question, kinds of patterns. And, wait a minute. I have a question for both of you. Are you murderers? Mm -hmm. If you think about uh, yeah. it, you wait <laughs> not, a minute. Not I don't life. know. No, I think by your standards, you are. 
because after all, you live in a very rich society. You could certainly save 10% of your income if it was sufficiently important. And 10% of your income could almost certainly save several lives in the third world where there are very poor people. So if you really want to take the position that failing to help someone is morally equivalent to hurting someone, which I think is the position you're taking, then you have to label yourselves as murderers. So you're making assumptions the, here. The First of all, I taking. give more than 10% of my income to, to fundraisers you know, every year, and I could document that if-, if Could if you give more? To, but that's not the point. I give as much as I'm, as, as much as I'm able now, but the point I is I also- Do you save as work, many lives as you can? I do try to, yes. I do try to through, through the process of direct action, mutual aid, and liberation struggle, I do my best. And I believe that every anarcho-communist that is principled and believes in these things does put the liberty of other, what we always say is nobody is free until everybody is free. So okay. I believe that Andrew you're taking action to your political ideology, but are you taking action to save the lives in the most efficient way that could be done? Right? I like, try every day you know, to, the, to save as many lives in the most efficient way as I can through the framework that I understand, I do. Now, maybe I maybe there are improvements that okay. can be made, maybe there are, there are mistakes that I make sometimes, et cetera. Well, you know, this slightly changed I don't want to make this about question. individuals. Do yeah, you, change the question. Do you, think, do you think that almost everyone in the world is a murderer? No, but again, I don't think that this murderer... I, I, I don't get the question. Yeah, the, the, I, I'm not seeing the, how... Almost nobody being... in the world is saving as many lives as they can. If you are, then you're me, one okay, of let the me turn it around. Okay. one in a million I do believe are. that I, as a United States of American citizen, have a responsibility and an obligation to do everything that I can to stop the United States government from you know, enacting imperialist war, from uh, developing no. these, building this giant police state that murders and imprisons people. So I do think that, there, that by being a part of the society and having whatever benefits I get from being an American citizen, although I'm trying to change that, I do want to change yeah. my citizenship as soon as possible. But as long as I'm a citizen of the USA, I do believe that it's incumbent. And even if I somehow change my citizenship, but, I would still do everything I could to stop any coercive force. Like where I would say ethically not. it's incumbent on us all to do everything within reason that we can to help our fellow man to make a good faith effort. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea for us to sacrifice ourselves for others necessarily. Are you saying that Let both of you in. are living entirely on beans? Right. That's on the a, okay, you're, you're, you're making this an individualistic problem. You're setting this up in individualistic terms where I have to, as an individual, meet some purity test. But we're talking about systemic problems here. And systemically, we are trying to change the system. We are trying to do what we think is the best strategy to change the system to save lives because we don't think that it's an individual problem where Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or any individual given I, capitalist is the I mean, I think we've gotten sidetracked boogeyman. from the point that David Freeman was, was trying to make, right? Well, I mean, the point here, just that I, I don't think... quite understand the point because it's essentially an ad hominem argument. Like, even if he oh, was no. right, like, let's say I was a murderer, like, the, not even in the, the sense. The no, point, it's not, the it's point not is an, you, well, Mike, the you, point is not to attack you. Right. The point is, like, it looks like you're endorsing a moral principle, which implies that almost everyone is equivalent to a murderer, and that seems very implausible. I mean, I don't. When I was a, that, when I, let me put it this way: when I was a argument. capitalist, when I was a capitalist, and I was, and I had an employer-employee relationship with people, where I was sending somebody out, and I was getting a hundred dollars from the client, putting fifty dollars of that into overhead, paying the employee ten dollars, and then I was pocketing forty dollars for myself. And yeah, I did some work, so maybe maybe that would accumulate to about ten or fifteen, twenty dollars worth of labor, whatever. But whatever, the profit that I'm taking was theft. Okay, and at that time, I was a thief, and I, in my opinion, and I was stealing labor value from my employees. Right. So, if I were currently doing that, then it would you could say that I'm being hypocritical. But what I'm trying to say is these systems of coercion are the problem, and we as individuals, we can. 
obviously go tit for tat all day on what the best decision for an individual to make is. But the, what we're debating right now is not individual actions, but it's what system for society saves the most lives, prevents the most harm, reduces coercion, reduces suffering we, as much we, as possible. We, we, I would also we, add that we, proving we a agree. person a hypocrite doesn't doesn't prove Hold them on. wrong. Let me let me jump in here really fast. Um, we are actually um, going to be having to wrap this up, but I'm going to give the last word here to Dr. Humor since he wasn't able to really give uh, his perspective on things. So, Dr. Humor, if you sure. want to go ahead and uh, give your thoughts on everything, we'll wrap up the discussion and then head into Q&A. Okay. I, um, I mean, I had a speech that I was going to give, but I think I, I should not try to do that because of the time. Um, but I was—I mean, I was going to make the argument that I think anarcho-socialism is unstable in the sense that I think it will evolve into capitalism. And basically, you know, I would say, well, there's no state to prevent somebody from setting up a capitalist enterprise. And then I just think that it, once there is one, it's going to outcompete the socialist um, businesses, um, partly because the anarcho-socialist businesses are going to be providing um, social services, which the uh, capitalist businesses will not. Um, and partly because I think, um, you know, can't, can't go into this in detail, but I just think that the capitalist run businesses are going to be more economically efficient and things like that. So, um, you know, if anarcho-socialism were to be set up, I would be happy because I would then expect it to evolve to anarcho-capitalism. Uh, we know why state socialism doesn't evolve into capitalism is because the government shuts you down when you try to start your own business. Um, the point that we were just talking about before this, like I think that um, you know Brenton and American were misunderstanding David Friedman's point. It was not to accuse you of hypocrisy. Like you are just like a random example of a person who does not seem like a murderer, right? The point is not that you're hypocritical. It's that if you think that there's no relevant distinction between failing to help somebody and harming someone, then there's no distinction between failing to save as many lives as possible and murdering people. And if you think that, then you think almost everyone is equivalent to a murderer, because hardly anyone is saving as many lives as they can. Um, and then that just really doesn't seem true, right? Just like it seems like there's a big difference between us and you know Ted Bundy, right? Um, can I answer? The, can I respond to that, or do we just need to go straight into the the questions? Yeah, we're gonna have to go straight in. Also, since you guys started, um, we're gonna have to have the Right, the right libertarians. libertarians. And <laughs> uh, that, that's fair, Mike. We we should have a debate later because I, I actually this is fascinating and I do actually really want to talk about this. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, that's that's a really great debate. Thank you all for um, for for coming out and taking your time. Um, we can definitely get into questions now. The first one is from Lehman. He says, "At all of the debaters." What are your thoughts on centricism? On what? On centrism. Centrism. <laughs> I don't know what centrism means. Being is centrist. It's like being centrism. in the middle of the Politically political centrist. spectrum. Politically um, centrist. The, the, the compromise position where it's like we shouldn't be an extremist on any end and we all, you know, it's a, it's well, a position between a Republican and a Democrat in the U.S. I, I, think, I think all of us are quite a long distance from centrists. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fair to say. One side I mean, wants to commit genocide. The other side doesn't want to commit genocide. Maybe we do a little genocide. <laughs> yeah. What I always say is that centrism is just support for the status quo. So if you like the status quo, you're a centrist. All right. Next one is from Dave Allo. 
F in the chat for Mike Humor's connection. People were sad that you weren't here. <laughs> Thanks. I'm we're sad too. <laughs> we're so glad you were able to come um, for this last part here. Um, next one is from Silent Zero. If you uh, were a businessman, why didn't you keep going and give your ownership of your business away to your workers? I did. I gave my business to my workers. My biggest business was a video production company and I did give it to my workers and they ran it successfully, I think to this day. Okay. So um, yeah, and they, and they did a really good job owning it collectively. And it's a very good success story for uh, collectivist ownership of the music production. And in fact, I'll say that as a, when I, we had a web development aspect of that business and I made a lot of mistakes and my employees took that part of the business and grew it after I left because they are actually expert web developers and web designers and they know that business and they have what, uh, I can't remember who said this, but they had the kind of the authority of the shoemaker, which means that if somebody has uh, expertise in something, we do give that, we do yield some benefit of the doubt to them and give them some credence when making decisions. And if I had done that more as a top-down capitalist when running my business and listened to those employees more instead of wearing the capitalist hat and being like, I'm the boss, it's my way to the highway, we probably would have grown and made more money earlier on. But once I gave it to them, that part of the business grew and expanded. I mean, this is anecdotal, you can believe it or not, but it's it's true and it's my lived experience. So yeah, I did give my, my biggest- I believe it's true, but the question is if it's, if it is generally true, if in general businesses will do that- Cooperatives do tend to be more efficiently run product. than capitalist businesses uh, what? across the board. Yeah, there's That's a lot that. of data behind that. The, the biggest problem with cooperatives is not that they um, don't do better than capitalist businesses like actually serving it. The issue is is uh, serving um, stockholders because they don't turn as large of a profit over and so they don't attract the kind of um, uh, investment that- uh, They don't get those hockey stick uh, uh, things that venture capitalists require, but also just under capitalization. It's a lot harder for a collective of people to start. Like if you have 50 workers, it sounds great because oh, we can put all of our, work, our money together, but starting a company that can support 50 workers takes a tremendous amount of capital. So, I mean, just in terms of real estate alone and that sort of thing. So, um, but anyway, I guess we're getting into weeds, but yeah, that's my response to that. Next question is from Steven Steen and he actually, he's a fan of you, Brenton. He says, I'm only here for Brenton's intro. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I, I love writing and these intros for everybody. He should have left. Um, next one is from Rodney Falberg. He says, capitalism needs reform but shouldn't be abandoned for socialism. A temporary tax-free UBI, a thousand a month, for eight years would give the working class an economic breath and shorten the gap between the 1%. Okay. Is that for just anyone to comment on? Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, like, I don't support that, but, you know, basic income is a lot better than um, most of the other things that people talk about. It's, it's a lot better than what we're doing now, right? Um, and, you know, and, and it's better than going all the way to socialism, right? So sort of like just let the market go because it's efficient, let it produce and distribute goods. And then, you know, you could redistribute things. Now, I'm not in favor of that, but, you know, I think that that's the smart thing. If you, you know, if you kind of like are not that strong on property rights or something, then that's the smart way to do it. I think what would be really, really interesting if we're going to try to preserve the system of, of capitalism, and I, I don't think we necessarily should largely because of climate change, but if we were to preserve it, um, and I'm just being overly uh, cynical about everything, um, I think if you did UBI and combined it with universal health care, you would see an explosion uh, within, especially in the United States, within the flyover states, because there would be people exiting the cities where they're currently forced to live so that they can 
have a decent job and have health care. Uh, and they'd be moving to smaller towns where they could live on the UBI. You'd even see uh, a smaller carbon footprint, it, it, I would assume, because there'd be less commuting, less people stuck and taking public transit. Um, and I would really love to see like the renaissance that might come out of that, that uh, with that economy being breathed into the smaller towns with it within the country. I, th I think it would be a wonderful thing. So I, I just want to say, uh, the UBI, they aren't producing anything, right? So you've just wiped out a large part of the stream of goods and services that people want. I mean, it's you not to say that they're not producing created anything. about a, a, a little over a trillion dollars cost for the UBI at the scale he was giving it, uh, about uh, what one point six? You know, yeah, about he one. He said a thousand a month. Dollars. Yeah. What? His yeah, he's the questioner said a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's 12, this is, this to me is one of the terrifying things about capitalism, which is that we value people's lives based on what they produce. And then we live in a context now where automation is going to get stronger and stronger with AI. So now we have the SoBot, for instance, which is going to automate textiles. And that's now a problem. Eliminating a dirty, dangerous job that nobody really wants is a problem for our society because now all these people who work in textiles are going to be jobless for a period of time. Capitalism and, is and, and doing that for the last chaos. 200 years. Right. If you go back, yes, but we can build a system hundred years ago, a majority of the population of the U.S. were farmers. That was a dirty, hard job. And we're now down to what, two percent of the population or something. But we'll say I'm, I'm a big Wendell Berry fan, and I think I might pre prefer that dirty, hard job to um, what a lot of the prospects that we have today under capitalism. Um, and that's another thing that I wanted to bring up during the debate is that like uh, take for instance Cambodia before Pol Pot before before um, the the guy who's almost worse than Pol Pot who preceded him um, that was a nation of peaceful Theravada Buddhists and Westerners came in and in, uh, they worked six months out of the year and had six months out of the year off and Westerners introduced new agricultural methods that allowed them to double their harvest, thinking that they would then um, continue to create and produce. These Theravada Buddhists then worked four months out of the year and <laughs> kept where they were with the new things. And I think there's really something to be said for that lifestyle, uh, for being satisfied with, with, with what you produce and without the um, you know, overproduction that is incentivized by capitalism that's currently the killing us. The lifestyle where you're living on the UBI is a lifestyle where other people are doing the work to produce what you consume and you are oh, not well, doing robots are doing it. <laughs> like we, we we don't have like the, the right now we've, we've, we've got been a, having we've been having we've been having increased mechanization now for what 200 years mm -hmm. and um, oddly enough it has not resulted in there being no jobs for humans it just means that well, we get richer and richer yeah, because then they have to invent bullshit jobs like but but the, the point being is is that like um Right now with COVID, we've got the country mostly shut down or we tried our best to shut it down and then didn't really shut it down. But there are no supply shortages that we're having as a result of COVID. We're not having a difficulty getting the things that we need. The big problem with COVID is, is that people are being forced to go to work at Taco Bell and, uh, you know, at, uh, at KFC. And when they do that, they get COVID and they die. Like, we, what are the deaths up to now? Like 200,000 almost? people who are below about 40 or maybe even 50 who get COVID have something like one chance in a thousand of dying. Of people dying, like yes, but also grief. there's permanent, there, there's like permanent damage. A buddy of mine is my age who got COVID, there is, like there, he there is can't damage which may or may not turn out to be permanent. We don't know. All right. <laughs> let's, let's move on to the next oh one. Let's take another question, absolutely. All right, perfect. Um, actually, the next one is for you, Dr. Friedman. He says, 
Are you familiar with Branko Milanovic's elephant, elephant curve? If so, what is your opinion? And this is from am, Louis Romero. I am sorry, I am not familiar with the elephant curve, and I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> con the world is full of things I don't know, <laughs> which makes life interesting. It's true. Um, con the Stoner Lynn says, it seems to me that an actual free market prices would tend toward cost as profit from scarcity would be used to create an abundance. Opinions? I'm not sure I understand the, the, the statement. I would have said that by the standards of most past societies, we have an abundance. It's just that we keep raising our standards as we get, get, get richer, richer and richer. That much earlier, one of my two uh, opponents or whatever we're calling each other was talking about how terrible things were in 19th century England. But that's comparing 19th century England to 21st century England, not comparing 19th century England to 18th or 17th century England. Well, I invite you to go to rural South Carolina where there are communities, black and white communities that don't have running water. We have the corridor of shame where the schools have, are literally crumbling. They don't have any infrastructure being built. The roads in South Carolina are horrible. So I would push back against this idea that everyone has better living standards today. There are a lot of people in the USA, the most wealthiest country in the world, who live in conditions that are worse than anything I've seen here in Southeast Asia, and that includes Cambodia. Yeah, I mean, um, the millennial so, generation, we're living in worse conditions than our parents did. Like, I, I think across the board. Especially since COVID. Hard to believe. Yeah. I don't think One that. in seven Americans uh, are relying on a food pantry. We are ranked 102 in deaths of malnutrition, where you know, we have it worse than Turkey and a lot of other countries. Um, Worse than Vietnam and Cuba, by the way. I'm not even a Marcus Leninist, but I will say that uh, uh, the USA has two times more deaths by malnutrition than, than uh, Cuba, and 60 times more deaths and by malnutrition how, than Vietnam. How do you, how do you believe these numbers were calculated for Cuba and for the U.S.? Do you happen to know? Uh, I've got my resource here. It was from the uh, World Bank, I believe. Let me check. All and right. how did and where did the they get the numbers and... from? They didn't go there themselves. I live in Vietnam, so I can tell you that the, the food stabilization program in Vietnam and the and the food distribution system here in Vietnam is extremely efficient. It works really well. The people love it. Uh, and it's been really, really showing it's uh, getting earning the gold stars here during COVID. Uh, there are not people who are suffering from insecurity here the way that they are in the USA. I know that for a fact because I used to volunteer for food banks. I'm still in contact with a lot of those people. The food banks are really suffering right now. That's why I just did a big uh, fundraiser stream with one of my associates for the food banks because they're suffering right now. And uh, it, but the, none of those things are happening in, in Vietnam. There is so much plenty that there is a rice bank right now, a rice ATM that gives out free rice and there's not enough demand for it. So the guy's having to go out and advertise and, and get a loudspeaker and say, hey, come get free rice. And nobody's coming to get it because everyone has food here in Vietnam. Now that there are Vietnam is very complicated. So I'm sure people in the comments are right now saying that I'm defending Stalinism or whatever. I invite you to learn more about Vietnam. It's a very complicated situation. Certainly there are aspects of the state that are incredibly abusive here. Uh, but if you want to learn more about that, my partner Luna has a channel at youtube.com slash Luna Oy and gets real first person uh, irrefutable evidence of the things that I'm talking about. So. What, what I might jump on with that also is like the looming eviction crisis. Even before COVID, the United States had 1.5 million empty homes. Uh, that's from the Center for Housing and Urban Development. Um, and only 568,000 homeless people. So we could give each of those homeless people three or four homes to themselves and we'd still have homes left over. And, that's and they did it in London. Yeah. In and London, they gave every, at the beginning of COVID anyway, they gave every homeless person a room and it was fine. There was plenty of capacity for it. There's, and they did it, but okay, now they're so, back on the streets. I mean, I think we could do that once. 
Um, but in the future, we would have to stop doing it because people would stop building homes when they learned that if it was vacant, then the government would take it away and give it to a homeless person. I mean, under uh, under capitalism, sure, but there are ways to make that happen where you can keep the uh, the uh, incentives in place. I mean, people tend to, and this was the other thing, like, because um, Dr. Friedman, he seemed to have the idea that um, if we weren't forcing people to engage in the market with the uh, cudgel of poverty, um, like, and people went and lived on um, the UBI, that they wouldn't be contributing to society. I, I think they absolutely would be contributing. They just would be contributing in a different way than they currently are. Um, I've found yeah. I've gone through long periods of unemployment, and I find it is one of the most um, depressing things that you can do, even when you have a job um, that is uh, guaranteed to come back. Like it, even when you're all the bills are paid, and you uh, are just waiting on your job to come back, like I was when I was managing um, two months out of the year. It, it was incredibly depressing to go through that period, and I had to find uh, productive ways to busy myself. Um, constantly. I think a lot of people are like that. I mean, um, you know, Khalil Gibran, yeah. read On Work by Khalil Gibran. I just put it out on my channel. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, humans are naturally motivated to work and to contribute to our, um, uh, our communities uh, and our families. There's a great article called Ayn Rand versus Anthropology that talks about the what we would call primitive, I hate this terminology, but primitive societies like pre-agricultural societies. And the fact of the matter is they are very collectivist in nature and they have uh, social dynamics where if somebody's not contributing, they go in and they find out why they take care of that person's whatever issues they're having that cause them to not contribute. And it works really well. It's called Ayn Rand versus anthropology. There are a lot of case studies in that. Uh, but people people generally want to contribute. And anybody who says that somebody who, want, who gets on welfare is just going to be lazy and do nothing has never had to rely on other people for something before. I've never been on welfare myself, but I've been at periods in my life where I had to rely on uh, other people. I, I, was, I was virtually homeless for one period of time where I had to have one of my friends who uh, owned several houses let me live in one of their houses for free for a couple of months. Um, I was very fortunate that I had that social contact. If I didn't have that safety network uh, that I had cultivated on my own as an individual, I would have been homeless. And I was not happy so, with that situation. I, mean, I, in that I, don't think, I wasn't trying to engineer it to live in that house as long as I could. Was, I wanted to get into a I don't a think you can generalize you from yourself to people in general. I, no, no, you there, can't. There but are, I think that you can look at, there's data points and, and we've pointed to. So that, uh, I'm not saying can, that everyone is like this, but there are some people who would just like to live off the work of others if they can and not contribute. But sure, if we can, but, okay, so let's say that the there, run, there are people like that now. What happens to those people? Yeah. Would like, you like say that those people should just babies. die if they if um, if, if it, they should get if they're job. not able to work? <laughs> but, but what if they don't? Then they should just die. Um, I don't know. I mean, so if they refuse to get a job, well, that might be like um, you know the unemployed and homeless people that we have right now, right? It's like but, yeah. I well, mean, okay. So it, a great example of that is Columbia, South Carolina, where they just shut down a mental health institution and put them all on the streets, which is why to this day there's a massive uh, homelessness problem in in South Carolina. So these are people who <laughs> cannot get a job, and uh, and, you know, and, and, and underlying with a lot of the people who we would call lazy or, or whatever, there usually are these kinds of underlying uh, extenuating circumstances that I think it's incumbent on us as a society to take care of those people in this situation. That's another we were thing. Discussing, I mean, we were discussing a situation where there was a UBI such that right. people could go to a low cost place and live off the UBI. That was what, what Michael and I were responding to. So like and billions of units of clothing. In a context where we have the capacity to, to generate billions of units of clothing, 
and, and that end up in landfills before they ever come to any consumer. Why should anybody be without clothes? One person can make enough clothing for hundreds or thousands of other people to be clothed. In that context, do you really think we're going to have a situation where we're going to have a catastrophic shortage whenever we can build enough houses for us to have six empty houses for every homeless person, hundreds or thousands of units of clothing for every person who needs a, a pair of clothes? We can generate so much food that we're throwing away tons of it. In that context, do you really think that a few lazy people are going to completely dismantle and well, and, and destroy society? Not, I don't think so. Lazy people. You're talking about everybody in the U.S. having the option of taking everything as leisure by living at a relatively low income rather than taking part of their time uh, to produce things. And well, that's one option. You're, you're making a false dichotomy. There's also the option of making... Of, of using a contract instrument to create a society where you collectively own the means of, of, of whatever your work is with your fellow workers and you sign a contract with your community that says, I promise to contribute this amount of labor and do this and this and this, and in exchange, I get my material needs met. And, nothing and if that contract is violated- doing that today. What it I prevents mean, you from doing is making somebody who hasn't signed the contract support you. I don't have the option to create a collective with other people where I own the infrastructure of my town. There's no way. If, if, I couldn't if, if, own the the internet. How 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 would that how would that pragmatically happen with the system that we have right now? How could I and a few like-minded individuals uh, meaningfully take ownership of our own community, short of ending the state and capitalism? I don't know what ownership of the community uh, means. But you could take ownership of your own production. You could. You, 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 we've just been told that you've been that you've started firms. People, other people poverty. Well, I was lucky that I had a student loan to start that. Not everybody has these options that I have, like staying in my friend's house or getting these student loans to start my first so you company. Can, so you can start a commune right now, right? It's not illegal. Some right. people have done it. Right, um, but the, communes, the, okay, there that's, are, that's the weirdest thing land. is that everybody thinks communists want to live in communes. The common yeah. communism comes from common, common property. Um, there is a, a, a political thing called communalism that is based around living in communes, but like, Yes. I, I've stayed with communes before. I, I didn't enjoy it particularly, you but like you know, I, I stayed with the twelve tribes uh, up while I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, Maine to Georgia, and they fed me very well and were very nice. But that's not necessarily how I want to live. Um, you know, the the thing is, is especially with the anarch anarchist communists, a lot of us are like aggressive individualists, and specifically look at communism as in common property as the best system for preserving individual liberty. Which was a thing I would have liked to have gone in. Do we need to move to the next question though? This is fascinating. Sure. But I have a feeling we'll, we'll be at this all night. I want to be respectful <laughs> yes, to uh, Dr. Friedman's time. Yes, we do. Thank you. Um, the next question is from Xanos Carthage for Dr. Friedman. Have you heard about what about youism? What about um, what? Sound, what about um, Like you as in a person and then ISM. Sounds like you were trying to say that with accusing your op opponents um, that they do not donate their money. What, so, what? The, I don't know what youism is, but the I guess it's a form of whataboutism, but it's like what about youism? I, I guess the, argue, the argument the argument that I was offering was that if it is the case that failing to help someone is morally equivalent to hurting him, which it seemed to me was implicit in the arguments that my opponents were making, then it would follow that they and uh, pretty much everybody else were murderers, and I don't find that a morally convincing claim. That I think it's important to distinguish between harming someone and failing to help someone 
and that if you really take seriously the, I mean, a different argument, if you really take seriously the idea that failing to help somebody is uh, coercion, you then end up with slavery because you then say, all right, I need your services in order to do surgery on my wife or whatever. If you aren't willing to, to do them in the, on some terms acceptable to both of us, then you'll have to do it. And that's not an attractive outcome. Yeah, I would say there's a totalizing way of looking at this because it is not equivalent to like failing to help someone is not equivalent to hurting them. But that doesn't mean failing to help someone is not coercive, especially if you're in a position where if you fail to help that like, like where you have demanded an unreasonable um, reward for failing yeah. to help them. I don't know what makes it unreasonable. I offer I offer somebody a job. He accepts mm -hmm. the job, not because it's exactly what he wants, but because it's better than any other job he has available. So I, mean, I have made him like better this. off, not worse off. Yeah, so, say we're in the desert. Is, I'm coercing him because the job not, is not in all respects well, what he would like. Okay, so say, that, we're, say we're that, in the desert, that, really quickly. Mm -hmm. say, say we're in the desert and there is a, a water source and I need that water or I'm going to die. And you come up to me and you say, no, 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 I own this water source. The only way I will give you a drink is if you agree to become my slave for the rest of your Which life. Which is how I, land ownership began. It has yeah. to. All right. Well, well, um, Dr. Friedman's going to get the last word on this since this was okay. before yeah, him. Yeah, it was a question. And then we'll for him. go on to the next. Is round. there one more question or not? You can go. No. You can respond to Brenton, and then we'll we'll move on. Oh, all right. That is. The water in the desert is a rather unusual situation, and you then would have to ask how the person did or didn't uh, get the uh, ownership of that water. If it's water that he trucked in then it seems to me that he does have a claim to say, I'm saving your life and I'm gonna charge you a very high price for that. He'd be a nicer person if he didn't. If it's water that's just there and he seized it, then he doesn't have that claim. But it seems to me that in general, you are confusing the fact that given what, we, what the world is like, somebody has to do things and otherwise we all starve to death. And you're trying to evade that by imagining a future where somehow uh, technological improvement makes the world so rich that nobody has to do anything. That's not very likely. Uh, and I mean, the evidence of the last 150 years, during which time real incomes have gone up by something, I think over an order of magnitude, is that as that happens, people also expand how much they want. And the result well, the, is- the, the, the myth of- oh, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to talk. Yeah, let, let <laughs> just go excited. on to the next one. <laughs> I got excited. Literally, I, I could do this for like eight hours. This <laughs> is fun, and we should do it again, whether or not other people are watching. Uh, absolutely agreed. Agreed. A few more questions here. Just to wrap up, Brian F. says, is it possible to start a socialist movement in a capitalism state and in, a re and in reverse from a socialism state and allow capitalism in it? It depends on the form of socialism. Yeah. If socialism is state socialism, then when, as, as Michael pointed out earlier, when you try to start your capitalist enterprise, the state will probably shut you down. If the socialism is the kind of socialism which involves voluntary cooperation with people, I haven't heard from the other two whether if I do work and produce some capital goods, you're entitled to seize them, but if not, then Michael's point earlier, uh, in, a, in that kind of socialist system, people can form capitalism. Uh, in a capitalist system, similarly, uh, you can first you can move to state socialism, as has happened in some cases. But in terms of your kind of socialism, as I keep pointing out, if it's really that much better, you don't have to have a revolution. It's something you can do on a small scale, 
you people can create workers co-ops each workers co-op that supposedly is going to be more productive than a firm was if then it's going to have money with which you can lend to other workers to start another workers co-op so we're really if it's really the case your system works then you don't need a revolution to do it in a capitalist system and what's much more likely if it's the case that your system works for some particular niches for a variety of reasons you might consider, for example, that essentially all law firms in the U.S. are workers' co-ops, so they're workers' co-ops and only some of the workers, namely the partners running them. Uh, but if there are places where it works better, then in a capitalist system, if the government leaves you alone, in those places you will end up with what you're calling socialism. I mean, what I would say uh, to that is, like, I, as far as revolution goes, I, I would hope that a revolution, like a violent revolution, can be avoided. It's never been, uh, in human history, the, those who gain great power almost never give it up voluntarily. Um, and so I, I think if there were any kind of a revolution, we would see it as a result of uh, the natural conditions that led to it. I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, I don't see a revolution as something that everybody just gets together and says, let's have a revolution, let's go do it. You know, you get the, you get the population forced into a very specific um, frame of mind by the, by, uh, the material conditions and lightning hits the right spot and bang, we've got the French Revolution or the American Revolution. Um, the, um, yeah, the, the, the revolution is happening right now. I'd, li I'd like to point out, I have a video but where I talk about uh, how to overthrow capitalism and it's not through getting your AK-47 and going out in the mm -hmm. streets, but it's through building dual power structures, mutual aid systems. And there are people who are already doing that and risking their lives engaging in direct action. And, but, but, but more importantly, aiding each other. And, and you know, we've seen the mutual aid uh, become a common buzzword in, in, in our communities now since COVID-19 started up because basically what rich people are doing is saying you all need to help yourselves and we're doing it and we're building unions and we're, we're having militant unionism with striking it is happening right now and I, I i agree with brenton that we don't need to have a violent revolution to overthrow capitalism and dismantle it so to answer dr friedman's question i don't i do think that we can go ahead and build our anarchistic uh systems within our communities but there are major barriers within this current form of state capitalism and i think even uh both of our uh both dr friedman and dr humor would, would agree that state capitalism creates a lot of barriers to a lot of people to do things that they should have the liberty to do. And, um, you know, whether it's poverty or whether it's, uh, you know, the corporate power uh, and the corporate collusion with the government and that sort of thing. And so, you know, we do need to have, um, we need to have this in mind as we're building these systems and, and, and be cognizant of that. But I do think yeah. that we could start building it right away. I would say what's important to look at here when we talk about big economic systems, because usually what happens when somebody says something like what the question was, where they say like, um, oh, you know, I have the, the freedom to act like a socialist in a capitalist uh, economy. Do I have the freedom to act like a capitalist in a socialist economy? That's kind of like a, a saying, um, do I have the freedom to act like an absolute monarchist in a capitalist economy? When s society has moved on from one major economic system to another major economic system where people are doing things in a completely different way, you know, you may be able to get together with your friends on the weekend and like do something like SCA, which is super cool. And I'm 1000% behind that. But that's not really the same thing as turning the clock back on the economic system and going to an older one. Like even if you all agree to do it like as some part of like almost full time as some in, part of a cult. In your system, if I say, if I get money in whatever way is legitimate in your system mm -hmm. and I save it and I use it to buy some, to, to make or buy, buy some capital. capital goods, 
And I then say, all right, these goods require 10 people to work on them. And I'm willing to offer a salary to people to, to, to work to work for this. And I will then, if, if there isn't enough of a market, I will then trade my output for either other people doing that or with workers co-ops. I don't mind trading with anybody. Uh, am I allowed to do that? Or does somebody have the right to seize my capital goods? Well, I so, would okay. say, uh, okay. So you need to look again at the history of uh, the Spanish anarchists because what you are describing literally happened in, in Spain during the revolution where people who uh, wanted to maintain their own private farms were allowed to do so. Um, but what was very important about that situation was the people that worked for them were working for them voluntarily because they had the chance to take a better deal from the collectivized farms. I so, expect it was not a better deal or it wouldn't deal. have been working for them. I mean, it, it was a better deal, but some people stayed because of loyalty or... Um, How do you, you know? know? Say what? How do you know? I mean, You're making factual assertions, and I don't think they're assertions you could know. I mean, again, there are a number of books that you can look into on this. Now, we did talk earlier about, like, how do I know that the, the history that I'm reading is correct? And, you know, history is an abstract. We can use that argument to dismiss any history and literally because all of history is just a story that we tell each other. But it seems to me from this, from both the primary and the secondary sources I've read, from reading Orwell, uh, from reading Abel Paz, from reading uh, Adam Hochschild, that this system, in fact, um, did exist in somewhat of the way that they described. Now, I'm sure right, there can, are some can differences. Can I comment? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I think that the original question was something like, um, can you start up capitalism within a socialist society and vice versa? Uh, and okay, if you're in a state socialist society, then no. But yeah, um, the way enough. that I understand anarchism, you know, you could do whatever you want. And like the way I understand anarcho-socialism is, um, well, you know, you can start up worker cooperatives. And if if the society is anarchist, there's no one to stop you. So of course you can do that. Um, now, you know, when I, I say I guess, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, I don't mean that I want to stop people from doing that. It's totally fine with me. Right, so there could, some of the firms could be capitalist run and some of them could be worker run and that's totally fine with me. But I take it that that's not fine with the socialists. They want them all to be worker run, right? Well, here's, now, here's what I would say. Is this is, I, I think, is a problem with the theory because I think there's just no way realistically for that to come about if you don't have a central authority. EJ, you want to take that? Well, I was just going to say there is a there is a branch of anarchism called mutualism, which is market like like markets are not automatically not allowed in any form of anarcho socialism. Like mutualism is based on markets, and uh, you can have an individual. The, the whole idea of mutualism is everybody should own their own labor, and so that means if you choose to have a cooperative with other people and build a big factory together, you can do that. If you want to be, uh, you know, an individual or have a little family business or whatever, uh, you can do that as long as you're not coercing somebody else for stealing their labor value. Um, then that's all, that's all fair game. And I would much rather live in a mutualist system than a capitalist system for sure. Um, but in a capitalist and I think system, everyone owns his own labor. People, you only work for no, somebody no, who no. to do it. You I own, certainly didn't own my own labor own when, I, when I worked for Uber. What? If Uber owned my property when I worked for Uber. There was no, they, they owned my labor. And so if, uh, if they, they decided to quit, they would have locked you into the car? No, but I didn't own my own labor. And, and the you owned your own labor and you sold, sold it to them. When you they, own things, it was a co I was out of money. I was broke. I was co I was in a situation where I had to choose an employee. You had a situation I where the best deal you could get was to sell your labor to them. You, but the fact okay. that you were well, selling so, them means so that you, you own it. You can use that same argument so to justify where, slavery. 
you can. Right, yeah. Okay. Next indentured servitude. Next, next question, guys. Are you pro indentured? Okay. <laughs> next question um, is from Rodney Falberg. Centrism is not supporting corruption slash status quo. It's about having a healthy middle ground and being willing to compromise, not being a hardliner. We're not willing to compromise on things. I don't think anybody on this panel is willing to compromise on things like human suffering or uh, or authoritarianism and that sort of thing. And, and those are the kinds of things that we're asked to compromise on within, for instance, the United States of America's government where I'm from. We're being asked, like, the compromise between the Republicans and the Democrats is over how much uh, oppression there's going to be. And we're saying there's no oppression is allowed at all. I, I, I like to think that all four of us would agree on that, but I, I think I've talked enough. Yeah. Um... So um, I guess I'll comment on centrism. I mean, I'm an extremist. Um, I try to be a reasonable extremist, but still an extremist. <laughs> but um, it's, oh, yeah. I mean, in a way, I'm glad that there are centrists or moderates, um, not because I think they have the right position, but because you know most of the extreme positions are horrible, right? <laughs> like, I'm not in favor of extremism <laughs> in general. True. There's only yeah, this one extreme position <laughs> I'm in favor of. And if you're not going to go with that, then be a moderate. That's fine. Right. That's, that's better. And than also, it depends on context. Like, so by, by, I don't think that, like, if, if, we, if we lived in a society that was anarcho-capitalist, they wouldn't call you an extremist. You know, it, it depends on the, it all depends on, like, the Overton window that you, no, that that's you right, yeah. occupy. But I, mean, I was a teenager in the 90s. Being extreme is super cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I think, like, there's a, you know, if, if you don't, um, if you're not super into all of this and like you haven't read the books on anarcho-capitalism and everything, I think it's totally reasonable for your initial reaction to be, I want to stay away from these crazies. <laughs> and that's reasonable partly because like, you know, the society that we're living in is going really well by historical standards, by human standards. Like, you know, nobody tried to murder me that I can remember ever, <laughs> just like, like just, just from that alone, right? And so when you start to think you know, somebody's, somebody's planning on radically changing society, if you don't know a whole lot about it, it's totally reasonable to think no, right? That's probably going to be bad. Gotcha. Next question is from Andy McKay. He says, do you assume markets in a stateless society would be as hierarchically structured as they are today without all the state privileges to capital holders. I imagine them to be far from more horizontal. I think that there would be some hierarchical, if you think about corporations, there is a real trade-off between, as I was saying before, uh, between market and hierarchy as well as organizing. Uh, and the classic work on this is a book is an article by Ronald Coase called Theory of the Firm, where he's trying to ask why do firms sometimes produce things in-house and sometimes buy them from other people. So it may well be that you would have less, fewer large firms or not as large firms without the government. So it's very hard to figure out the real effect of governments because they interfere in so many different ways. But I think that even in a perfectly free capitalist society, there would be some substantial firms because there are some activities where it turns out that the advantage of doing something in-house is larger than the advantage of doing out-house. On the other hand, I rather enjoy an agoric system, one in which you're, in which everybody is, as it were, independent. And at the moment, the only thing I am doing that earns me money uh, is, is, is writing books and self-publishing them. Some Which is awesome. Audio, That's the dream. <laughs> now audiobooks as well. So uh, I think that in, in a really laissez-faire capitalist society, the average firm size would be smaller than it is in ours. Because I think the government is doing things that sort of favor larger firms 
right? One of the things is when you get big enough, you can kind of lobby the government. The bigger your firm is, the more kind of political influence you can have. The other thing is people don't um, maybe don't realize this, that regulation favors larger firms over smaller ones because basically compliance um, is a large fixed cost. If you're, if you're starting up your own business, just like with you and a few people, you, you probably can't afford to hire all the lawyers to figure out all the regulations, right? Um, besides that, the regulations are probably, their content is probably designed to make it harder for small firms. So um, that's, that's part of what's going wrong in our society. Yeah, Michael, by the way, you're 1000% right on that, and I 100% agree. Um, but uh, the, the thing that I wanted to bring up in response to the question, um, not your wonderful comment, um, was, and, and this actually does tie into something you said earlier, because it sounded like you were making kind of the opposite argument that um, uh, David Graeber made uh, in his parable of the divided island. By the way, I'm very second of silence for David Graeber. It was awful that we lost him, because uh, he's brilliant. Um, but um, you know, the idea is is that if you did move beyond liberal capitalism as we see it today, or, or what ANCAPs might call corporatism or something, where uh, the government subsidizes various businesses and backs up property claims with its police and military, um, the idea is is that if you really did that, you took two groups of like one ANCAPs who want to organize hierarchically and one ANCOMs who want to organize. Um, uh, you know, in a more egalitarian way, between both of them, you would very quickly see both societies affected by the removal of state power. And um, it would come to resemble, the system that came out would come to resemble um, something entirely different than what we are used to thinking of capitalism as. So I would highly recommend everybody read that short essay, uh, The Parable of the Divided Isle. And I just wanna say that I'm a little bit surprised to hear Dr. Humor say that as these firms get bigger, they get more influence. And I, I'm a little bit confused, like how does removing the state change that dynamic? I still think that as they get bigger and wealth is accumulated, they get more political influence. I don't see how that dynamic would change with or without the state. It's just that with the state, you have the state to, your, your, your method of kind of uh, transforming that power into more power is through the apparatus of the state and manipulation of the state. And without the state, you just do it a little bit more directly where you hire the Pinkertons yourself and give them the Winchester, you know what I'm saying? So you still have that same dynamic where the larger and more wealth you accumulate, the more political influence you have. So I'm wondering what the state has to do with that basic power. If you want to respond, um, Dr. Humor, after that, we can go ahead and move on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like by political influence, I meant influence on the state. So if there's no state, you don't have that. Now you can like do stuff with your money in whether there's a state or not. You can, like get influenced by paying people to do stuff. Um, but you know, if you're thinking, oh, well, maybe you can like start your own state-like enterprise, right? If you're super rich. I mean, part of the point is that it's hard to get super rich without kind of like, without lobbying the government for favors. Like that's part of why we have a bunch of really large companies. I'm not saying there won't be any large companies, but I'm saying it would be less. Um, okay, but if the story is gonna be, oh yeah, so you, you use your money to hire a bunch of armed guards and like, you know, start up something that's kind of like the state. Um, well, you know, then we have to talk about the competition among security firms and the stuff that anarcho-capitalists usually say about that, right? Gotcha. Next Warlordism predates the state. But... All right, next question is from Sunflower. They say, um, at NC, do you actually believe Vietnam's 
um, stats on death rate from malnutrition. I see it um, as 0.02, whereas neighborhood Laos and Cambodia are over 400 times that. Come to Southeast Asia and travel around and you will quickly see why that is. Cam Cambodia and Vietnam are absolutely massively different and a big reason of that is because of capitalism. If you go to Cambodia, food is very expensive. So for example, if you want to buy rice in Cambodia, it's all 100% dictated by the market. Cambodia is a very poor and imperialized country and rice and food staples are very expensive there. They, we recently had a epidemic uh, uh, that was that was killing pigs, some kind of some kind of pork disease. I don't know. I'm not I don't remember what it was called or whatever. But um, and, you know, this was a big problem that affected the whole region. It affected China, Vietnam, Laos, everything. Vietnam's pork prices stabilized. They were stabilized. The government has a very good pr price stabilization program. Again, I'm not a statist. I don't think this is the best solution. But within the context of having a state, I think price stabilization works. It's, it has worked in Vietnam very, very well. And if you travel around Vietnam, you will see uh, poverty, but you will not see privation. You will not see starvation. You do not see very many homeless people at all. Whereas if you travel around Cambodia, I haven't been to Laos, so I'm not going to speak to Laos. But if you travel around Cambodia, you'll see homelessness, you'll see privation, you'll see uh, much lower standards of living for most people. Most people in Vietnam, uh, they have a house, they have food every month. They might not make a lot of money, but the standard of living for a person, make, you got to remember that the, the price, the cost of living in the USA is heavily, heavily, heavily inflated. So the, a person living in Vietnam, and, and again, you can um, you can uh, go check out Luna's channel. She, she goes through all this and breaks this all down. But a person making like around five, six, seven hundred dollars a month in Vietnam has a better standard of living and actually saves more money per year than an American worker on working 40 hours a week on minimum wage. So, I mean, the, 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 it's not an apple and apple situation. It's very apple and oranges. The way that the, the communities are structured here is totally different. They have better. And this is the part where I didn't really get a chance to get into this. But what I really think is anarchistic about Vietnam is the culture here. It's a very collectivist, anarchistic culture. Vietnamese people do not like following rules. That was a big thing that people said about why <laughs> Vietnam was so good at handling COVID. Vietnamese people do not like to follow rules. If you don't believe me, go look at pictures of, or videos of Vietnamese traffic patterns. They do not like traffic laws. They do not follow traffic laws. And no Vietnamese person will follow a rule just because it's the law. There's a, there's a very common expression that goes back a thousand years here, which is that the rule of the village uh, trumps the, the law of the king. And Vietnamese people take care of each other on a very ground level. And so I've been to Vietnamese ward meetings, which is like a little neighborhood meeting, basically, where they'll be like, OK, there's this homeless man. There's an old man. He's homeless. What are we going to do about it? OK, Miss Nguyen, you have an empty room in your house. Uh, he can live there. I'll bring him food every day. And I saw this happen. They, they mutual aided each other into solving this problem. And that is why they, they still have these bonds, these collectivist bonds. And I think that we can move back to that as a society but there's this is this is really getting a lot of the a lot of the pigs I'm, I'm a little puzzled a lot of the pigs died so there yes. were actually fewer pigs to be eaten in vietnam as well as in Canada. so the government bought pigs bought pork from other countries and imported uh, it and kept the price stable that's what happened. i see so it's so, so the government is importing uh pork from other countries with tax money basically yeah and now again i'm not a state uh socialist so i i don't think that's the ideal way to do things but it did work much better than what was happening in like Cambodia and, and I believe Laos and China definitely were affected much more by this. Whereas I was here through the whole thing and there was basically no impact on the, the market. There was a very brief period where a few people tried to gouge pork prices um, in the first day or two. And then, but then that stopped as soon as the price stabilization kicked in, which happened very, very quickly. So, I mean, um, I'm not saying that that's the ideal system, but it did work. 
next next comment is actually a skeptic toward me. They say, (laughs) moderator, with all due respect, moderate. These leftists are just dominating the conversation. They're rambling and interrupting most of the time. So I apologize if you don't feel heard. And I like um, that he, I, I like that he's admitting we won. <laughs> but I should also say, um, you know, this was not as since um, Michael was not around, it, it might seem that we were talking too much. Oh, um, yeah, he's just complaining that you guys keep going on and you know won't won't let us talk, <laughs> which you just illustrated. <laughs> all right. Um, well, that is all for the questions. I really appreciate you all coming on. Thank you all so much for your time. I know you guys are very busy, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you very this much. was a lot of fun for being here and watching. Yeah. Awesome. And I hope if, if people are curious about my ideas, go look at my webpage, daviddfriedman.com. That's pretty easy to remember. And you can find Machinery of Freedom and lots and lots and lots of articles on different things and a variety of other books that I make available for free because I'm writing books mostly to get the people to read them. Wonderful. Um, if anyone wants to make just like goodbye statements, you can just like that nice short and pithy, and then we can call it a night. I would like, again, to take my hat off to Dr. David Friedman. I am so honored that he came in here and talked with us for this time. It's been very, very uh, stimulating, um, and I'm happy that Michael Humer was able to come in. Dr. Humer, uh, I would love to get a chance to talk with you uh, at a longer length. Um, Just if you guys can, please go subscribe to my channel. We are uh, growing very, very quickly. Do a lot of talk about politics, philosophy, and Buddhism. I thank the people who had this debate. It was fun. Uh, It would obviously take another 40 or 50 hours of talk to reach any (laughs) serious agreement, but they seem to be pleasant people. I still, however, do not see their solution to the problem of the coordination problem, as far as I can tell. It consists of saying there are places where it was solved, but not of explaining sort of as an economist, I want to understand the theory uh, because I don't think you can never learn history but I think you have to be very suspicious of historical claims, whereas you have to be suspicious of theoretical claims too, but at least the theoretical claim you can get inside your head and see what the holes are, whereas the historical claim could be completely bogus, could be completely true, and it takes a lot of work to find out anyway. Um, uh, So, you know, I want to apologize for being apparently two hours late or something like that. Anyway, uh, I also want to recommend my book, um, The Problem of Political Authority, where I explain my views about anarcho-capitalism. Um, and you know, uh, also David Friedman has an excellent book called The Machinery of Freedom, which you should read. Um, also, um, I want to recommend my blog, which is called fakenoose.net. Fake news spelled F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S dot net. Gosh, non-compete, is there any last words? Are there any last words you have? Yeah, I want to thank everybody for being here, for watching. I'm glad that we did this just because it exposed me to the works of Dr. Friedman and Dr. Humer. And even though it might not seem this way from watching your previous lectures, I do believe we agree in a tremendous amount of things. And you have both uh, given me a lot to think about. And, um, you know, so I, I really am glad you've been here. If I did talk over too much, I, I not to make an excuse, but there is a bit of a delay. I'm here in Vietnam. So there were times when I jumped in 
because I thought you were finished and I never intentionally tried to dominate the conversation as an anarchist. I, uh, I apologize if that was ever the case, but yeah, you can <laughs> we, check out we my were just acting anarchically. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's chaos. Anarchism is just chaos. No, uh, but uh, YouTube.com slash anarchy. Oh, I know I was being, actually. I was definitely yes. joking. That is not That's my actual position. Slam. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, I, think I, everyone I, at, <laughs> I think everyone at this table would really appreciate this. Go to my YouTube channel and Google Anarcho. It's a short play that I wrote uh, about a bunch of anarchists, including an ANCAP, trying to run a pizza shop in post-revolutionary <laughs> Brooklyn. And it, it's we'll like Bob's Burgers meets Occupy Wall Street. I think everybody would really enjoy that. Wonderful. That well, in James's words, keep differentiating the reasonable from the unreasonable and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save 